Uh, I know we have a few applicants today, but we do have a quorum. Um, so with that, I'm going to call the uh, July meeting of the uh, Commonwealth Transportation Board workshop uh, session to order. Uh, and as we always do, I ask you all to please stand as we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much. Uh, we do have a full day. It's going to be a uh, one-day session that includes both our workshop and we will then uh, go right into our uh, uh, work session, our, uh, our action item session, uh, and certainly we'll have public comment uh, in, in between those. And I mention that because if there are any things that we cover in the workshop this morning, and there's some things I know that are of interest, we would welcome your public comment during the public comment period. So you will have a chance to address the board on anything that you see uh, this morning, things that we're taking votes on this afternoon, and things that we are not taking votes on. Uh, before we start, uh, I do want to mention one of the things I on the agenda is uh, Governor and I met yesterday with Secretary Fox on uh, WMATA and Metro. Uh, it was a good meeting. Uh, many of you uh, have read the papers and have seen the issues that uh, WMATA is facing, both in terms of safety issues and financial issues. Yesterday's meeting dealt with the Governor Hogan from Maryland was there, Mayor Bowser from uh, uh, D.C., Governor Cullif, uh, and my counterparts from those localities were there. Uh, we also had staff there focused on coming together uh, to get WMATA where it needs to be. Uh, it was agreed uh, that the uh, executive search would, would now start again, uh, and hopefully uh, the agreement from the three localities to have a candidate by the end of the year, and, and working through the process that the board has, has developed. That process has started. Uh, certainly safety is a top, top concern. Uh, Secretary Fox made it clear that we had to make, uh, Romana needed to make significant uh, uh, progress on addressing the safety issues out of the various reports and the commitment from the localities and jurisdictions that are involved with Romana was given to the Secretary. That includes the new uh, Metro Safety Commission, which will take the place of the TOC, which was the old Safety Commission. That means legislation will be going through Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. this year to get that set up and get that funded um, going forward. So uh, there are other issues to be discussed, uh, how our board members coordinate, all those type of things. But it was agreed upon by the three executives of the localities and the jurisdictions uh, that we're all of one mind in getting this done and getting it done uh, effectively. I just wanted the board to know. Um, Funding for uh, uh, Metro and, and WMATA is a topic with our congressional partners. Uh, the Senate, it has, uh, in their version, has continued the 150 million. I think the House, the House next is a little less, about 100 million, which we would not be in favor of. So we'll be reaching out to our congressional delegation, and hopefully they'll get that funded. But the message I wanted to bring is that the, the three executives. Uh, of Maryland, D.C., and Virginia uh, committed to making sure that the Metro is, uh, has the right leader, 
is funded appropriately and has the right safety culture going forward with action items that we'll, we'll be seeing. So I want the board to know uh, what was going on there. Uh, I'm going to talk later. We have one item under new business uh, that we'll bring up, and that is the uh, uh, downtown midtown uh, uh, buy uh, out. Wasn't they buy down, but a buy out of, of tolling, uh, and also the 460 settlement. So before uh, we have uh, uh, at the end of our session, even though it's not particularly on here, we're going to be voting on some transfers. I'm going to go through in detail with you uh, the impacts to our six-year plan of those. I want to point out to the board, uh, in both of those, those were contracts where the executive branch had the ability to do that, but I certainly want the board uh, uh, to understand what we did and get your comments and ratification of those. Uh, I apologize that I had the opportunity to bring it to you before those deals come together. I would have. Uh, but I, you know, in the issue of transparency and, and accountability, I'm going to lay all that out here so you understand and exactly know uh, when you vote on these transfers what's going on. So just a couple of things up front to let you know. I'm sure there will be other topics as we go through, but I wanted to let you know that uh, those would be addressed as we go through later. Now, as I said, we've got a, a very long day, uh, and uh, the first topic will be the Potomac River crossing. You may have some, saw some of this, Mr. Zinsky, <coughs> in the press yesterday. And on, the radio. on the radio this morning, um, we have uh, been working with our Maryland counterparts, so listed, communicating with them, and also uh, our D.C. counterparts. Uh, as we go through, certainly uh, that's the, the greatest capacity uh, and crossings between our jurisdictions are important uh, and across the Potomac River. Mr. Donahue is going to lead us through this discussion. Uh, I want to point out though, and I think we've had this before, that Virginia does not control any of the bridges. Unlike any other, uh, uh, most parts of the United States, uh, rivers and, and jurisdictions control to the, the center of the river, but not so the Potomac. So D.C. and Maryland, where we cross the Potomac, they control to the knee, I believe it's high water, on the Virginia side. So uh, if we were to do anything, it would require our cooperation and probably the initiative of these jurisdictions because they actually control those crossings. So I want you to keep that in mind as we go through. And Mr. Donahue, I'll turn it over to you. Good morning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and good morning, members of the board. Uh, I am here today to talk about a study that's been underway for about two years. Uh, this is a study that is examining all of the bridge, both highway and rail transit crossings of the Potomac River in the Northern Virginia area, really stretching all the way down to the 301 bridge on the you know um, Upper Peninsula, all the way to the points of Rock Bridge on Route 15 in uh, Western Loudoun County. Uh, and really what we were trying to do with this study, and it was developed initially in cooperation with Maryland and D.C., was identify what is happening at these crossings and getting consensus on a common set of data. Because before this time, we actually didn't even have that between the various jurisdictions. And so the purpose of this study was really to do that. My presentation today has two parts. The first part is walking through what that study says, and the second part is really uh, considerations and takeaways on the point of this administration for really next steps from the Virginia perspective. And so those are not a part of the study, and I want to make sure the board understands 
D.C. and Maryland have not blessed some of the findings I'm going to talk about at the end of this presentation. And so this map here just shows members of the board who may not be familiar with all the 11 crossings, uh, where they are located in the region. And you'll see there's a kind of a cluster in the core there with the Key Bridge, the Roosevelt Bridge, the orange and blue and silver lines, uh, as well as the 14th Street Bridge and the yellow line, the VRE Bridge. And then you have several sets of bridges kind of moving further out with the 495 bridges at Wilson and the American Legion, and then two much further crossings um, down there at Route 301 to the south and east, and then Route 15 to the north and west. And so this is just kind of a map to provide some context to the members of the board. Uh, when we did this study, we actually were able to use new types of data sources that historically haven't been available as we've done these types of studies. So in the past, a lot of times when we tried to figure out how were people using the transportation network and where were they starting their trip and ending their trip, there was some poor soul who had to stand on the side of the interstate and write down license plates who then went to DMV and we mailed out letters to these people and said at 4 p.m. on Friday, four weeks ago, where were you going? And then hopefully they sent it back. And so we didn't really have the most robust set of data to understand how were people using the network, where did they start their trips, where they're in their trips. Um, it was really kind of our hope and it was very labor intensive. Over the last few years, there's a new set of data that have been coming out that really give us a much better understanding of how people use the transportation network. And so we used some of that data in this study and that was one of the first times the department had used that. And so a lot of the information in here is based on GPS data both to get travel speeds, which is very, very precise, as well as origins and destinations. And so really kind of understand where, do they, where did someone start their trip and where did they end their trip and what roads did they use along the way. And we can have that without someone's recollection of what they think they did because the GPS will tell us, in fact, what they actually did. And so this is you know, a study that I think is pretty interesting because it's able to use those new data sources. Let me make a point here. The reason that, uh, that that point that he just made about how the data is because and Mr. Zinsky and Mr. Gaspers will probably verify this. There's long-held views of, of things and traffic patterns in in Northern Virginia uh, that studies were done well back. Uh, and I want to make sure that the board understands is that. Uh, that this is, it may not represent those views uh, because based on the actual data, Mr. Cunningham get into it, but I know that's been a big topic up there and that's generated some political and other uh, positions uh, that uh, uh, we may find based on this data uh, will maybe challenge in the moment. Leave that at that, but I just want to make the board know there are some long-held views up there. Yeah. Nick, one question before you get rolling. Uh, on the 2040 projections for population, what, what source was used to extrapolate where we're going to be in suburban Maryland, Northern Virginia in 2040? Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Karzinski, so that's a very good question. We did use the regional travel demand models to uh, estimate what or project what future conditions would be, and that is a regionally developed cooperative land use forecast that all of the regions kind of, all the jurisdictions, excuse me, in the region come to some level of consensus on. And I say some level, I'm sure they all take exception to certain aspects of it, but it's a reasonably kind of consensus about where growth will happen. Is that through COG? Yes, sir. Uh, one other thing I should say is while this data is much more precise than the license plate surveys, which were riddled with, you know, statistical errors and other things, it's far from perfect. Right. So 
understand that what, what we have here is not a perfect data source, it's just a much better data source. So there may be things in here that you may know from experience or other things are slightly different, and you're probably right. But this is a much better set of data than we've ever had in the past, and it's only going to get better as we continue to move into the future. And so with that, just a few kind of uh, things here. And again, the way the bridges are displayed is on the highway side is from west to east. And so what this chart shows you is really what are the most heavily used river crossings in the Northern Virginia region. And what you can see really just stands out is the American Legion Bridge, which is the western 495 crossing, the 14th Street Bridge, which is where 395 enters D.C. at 14th Street, and then the Wilson Bridge, which is the eastern 495 crossing, far and away carry you know, the highest volumes of traffic. What's also interesting is that the uh, Metro Roslyn Tunnel is then the fourth highest uh, crossing there and carries a considerable amount of traffic, but really the takeaway here is the interstate bridges, with the exception of the 66 bridge, carry the highest volumes in Northern Virginia. We then also looked at, well, what is it during rush hour? And you see some of the same patterns, but it kind of one thing flips here. And so again, the American Legion, the 14th Street, and the Wilson Bridges stand out as the highest volumes for river crossings. And I want to point out the highway crossings are in vehicles, not in passengers. And so that probably wouldn't change the Wilson or Legion numbers uh, very much, but it would increase the 14th Street Bridge numbers because of the HOV lanes that are on that middle bridge there. And so that would probably go up, you know, another 10,000 or so. I'm kind of throwing a number out there, but several thousand. Yes, Mr. The, uh, is the peak just an hour, Nick, or is it rush hour six to nine? It's, uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. President, it's rush hour, so it's not a peak hour, it's a peak period. Yeah. And then, but what you see is the Roslyn Tunnel carries the highest number of passengers across the river in the A&P, and really the difference you have there is Metro Rail has extremely high uh, concentrations of its ridership during the rush hour periods, where the bridge have, have much more kind of consistent vehicular traffic and passenger use throughout the 24-hour period. So again, the Rosin Tunnel moves 70,000 of its 180,000 people during the AM rush hour, which is over, you know, 30-some percent, if I'm doing math right in my head here, which is a very high percentage for, you know, a few hours in the morning. Question, just to be clear, in this comparison, are we on the bridges comparing vehicles and on the metro comparing passengers? Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Kaskis, that is correct. Okay. And then again, for most of the bridges, I think vehicles is probably a pretty accurate uh, relationship to passengers. I think 14th Street is an exception, and the Roosevelt Bridge, which carries 66, which again is an HOV facility in the morning, is also going to be an exception there. Okay. Yeah, Mr. Kaskis. Uh, Nick, also... To Scott's question about the uh, Metro Roslyn, are you going to later on talk about some of the constraints that exist in reality to the yeah. Metro Tunnel and inside D.C.? Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. President, once we get past kind of the factual uh, aspects of the study, we will get into some of the kind of contextual aspects, including that. Thank you. Yeah, I think the key to point out here, what Nick is showing is, is that... Uh, the metro tunnel is extremely important during the rush hour. In other words, it's obviously taking a lot of commuters in and out of D.C. Um, to work and back in, in that regard. And, and that not being the case, uh, these other, even though they're not apples and apples, really, it was, I don't know that the bridges could even take it. 
if we didn't do that. I think that's, I think that's the key point here to point out. Okay. And so then, uh, Mr. Chairman, so here's the same uh, information shown a little bit uh, differently to kind of just be able to understand some of those numbers. And again, what's really interesting here to the point you were just raising is if you look at the Metro Rail Roslyn Tunnel and the Metro Rail Fenwood Bridge, which is the yellow line there, those are kind of the, the sets of lines from Virginia that run into D.C. 35% of all Virginians who cross the Potomac River in the rush hour use Metro Rail. And so, as the uh, Secretary was saying, WMATA is exceedingly important <coughs> to the Northern Virginia region, and that's why a lot of focus is put on that one transit agency. And I think this, seeing that 35% without WMATA, there is, there's no way to provide highway capacity to move these people into Virginia. The region would really just shut down in the AM rush hour. Just, I, yeah. <clears throat> just to note, that's also why one of the key components in momentum for the long term is the second because they're at peak capacity now. And AR trains are going to be extremely important in the short term. And uh, that's why, again, I started with, before this, about the meeting yesterday, right. we have got to get Lamont fixed. It's yeah. not a matter of, it's not, it's not a choice. Yeah. So these next set of slides start to walk into the conditions that are being experienced on these river crossings. And this is really focused on the highway river crossings. We don't have the same type of data for the metro uh, tunnel or the metro bridge. But what we did is really looked at what is the, you know, what are the congested conditions, if any, that are being experienced on these river crossings in the PM peak period. And in the rush hour on most of these bridges tends to be a little bit worse uh, in the PM for a variety of reasons there. And so what we're comparing here is the ratio of how fast the average person drives compared to the posted speed limit. And we kind of drew a line at 80% saying that things below that are likely, you know, problematic. What's really interesting is some of the bridges, like the Memorial Bridge, which crosses from the George Washington Parkway onto Independence Avenue, people on average drive more than 120% of the speed limit during the PM rush hour. And so there's you know, some unique things as you look at these different bridges. Not all the bridges are really experiencing you know, problematic conditions. Some, in fact, are operating up in excess of the speed limit there. Uh, so what, what stands out here as you look at this is the American Legion Bridge is the one bridge that really seems to experience very uh, poor travel speeds, both uh, heading from Virginia and heading to Virginia. And that speed limit on that bridge is 55 miles per hour. And so the from Virginia traffic, people you know heading into Maryland in the PMP, they're driving about 22 miles per hour on a road that's posted 55. Um, it is not a pleasant experience. As someone who you know experienced this several times this week, it it can take you upwards of 20 minutes to go the last three miles on 495 in Virginia. So I have some personal experience that validates uh, these numbers up there. Yes, Another thing I would add, Nick, to that is that this study was finished in 13, right? Since that time, we've really experienced the construction and utilization of hot lanes. We've repaired the shoulder to try to get people to eliminate the bottleneck at Tyson's, but I think it would even put these speeds lower because we have all that funnel coming into that Legion Bridge and that stopping. Like your example of three miles and 20 minutes. I'll amen that. It's much worse. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the other things I would just notice, the, the 14th Street Bridge is actually three bridges. 
So it's called the 14th Street Bridge Complex um, by people who deal with it on a regular basis. And that's the Mason Bridge, which is the folks heading from D.C. into Virginia, the Rochambeau Bridge, which is the HOV bridge um, in the kind of rush hour direction, and then the Williams Bridge, which is heading from Virginia into D.C. And what you actually see is in the p.m. rush hour, it's actually tougher to get into D.C than it is for Virginia residents to get out of D.C. there, which again is just another kind of contrary how the travel patterns in this region are really becoming heavy in both directions, and kind of the concept of this reverse peak, particularly when you're closer in, reverse commute, excuse me, is not really accurate anymore. It's just a rush hour in both directions, and both directions experience um, significant amounts of congestion. Another thing that we did is we looked at these river crossings is again using this GPS data which has recently become available as we started to say well where are people starting and stopping their trips? It's known as origins and destinations in transportation planning terms. And so this map here uh, shows you part of the origin and destination zones that we created so we break up all the jurisdictions into several essentially travel zones and we analyze where are people starting and where are they ending their trips who use various bridges. There's a second map that I'm not going to show you that goes all the way up to Illinois just to show you how far away some of these GPS trips went um, as people were using these bridges. But these are the ones I think matter for the board here as we consider, you know, what might need to be done in this region to address the river crossing issues. And so with that, I'm going to walk through some of the bridges that we've talked about just to give some additional context. So I want to start with the American Legion Bridge. And again, this bridge is on the western side of the region and it connects Fairfax County to Montgomery County. In the evening rush hours, you have about 25,000 folks heading from Virginia back into Maryland and about 29,000 heading from Maryland into D.C. Again, what's interesting there is traffic travel speeds are actually lower heading from Virginia into Maryland uh, even though there's less volume. It's just how it's all coming together with the ending of the hot lanes and the weaving movements from the George Washington Parkway and a lot of kind of roadways converging make that facility not work as well even though there's less vehicles trying to use it going north uh, during the evening rush hours. And this slide here really shows <laughs> some of the kind of major origins and destinations. So when people who are using this bridge, where are they starting and where they're stopping? And what you'll see is the vast majority of people, about 51% who use this bridge heading into Maryland in the afternoon rush hour, start in Fairfax, either in central Fairfax or in western Fairfax. And then the destinations are a bit more dispersed, but about 44% is Montgomery County, eastern Montgomery County, and then you have a whole host of other places that are in anywhere from 10 to 15, 19% for the rest of those remaining trips. And in the future, that's projected to kind of stay similar, but with a higher degree of people coming from central Fairfax, really that origin will uh, increase from about 30% of all trips to almost 50%, and you're, what you're seeing there is the growth of Tyson. Tyson's Corner is located right off of 495 in central Fairfax, and as the development takes place there, because of the Silver Line investments and the Beltway Hot Lanes, it's really anticipated that you'll have a lot more people commuting from Maryland into Tyson's Corner and back in the afternoons from jobs. Uh, this next bridge is the Woodrow Wilson Bridge, and this is the companion bridge on 495. So this is 495 on the other side of the region. It really crosses from Alexandria into Prince George's County. And again, you see about 32,000 people in the evening rush hours head from Virginia back to Maryland, and you have about 27,000 who come from, from, 
from Maryland into D.C. But if you take a look at the travel speeds here, generally folks are driving almost at or in excess of the posted speed limit. So the posted speed limit on that bridge is about 55 miles per hour. And one of the things that I think is really important for the board to understand is that the Wilson Bridge was replaced. Um, you know, it was upgraded from a six-lane bridge, which was probably notorious along the East Coast on I-95, up to a um, ten-lane bridge with reserved space for transit. And it created through lanes as well as local lanes on that facility. And it really, since that opened in 2009, has changed kind of the experience um, on that facility and appears to be working. Um, well, I think well, generally working. Yes, sir. Yes. 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 Nick, I, the only thing I would say, because I use that every day, <laughs> and I had Helen uh, Cuervo from Northern Virginia District looking into that. Uh, for reasons unbeknownst to me, going into Maryland in the afternoons uh, from like 3.30 on has gotten slow again. Now, I don't know if it's the big casino on the other side, but again, this was 13 and now it's 15, and I... You know, it's exaggerated what's happening there. So a lot of these conditions have worsened since the study. And yeah. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, that's a very valid point. This is speed data from 2012 and 2013, and I have also had the uh, experience of going from uh, Virginia into Maryland to travel, and it is it can be quite congested some evenings. And again, if you look at uh, this facility, you see a lot of similar kind of origins with Fairfax County, although different parts are really central, and then kind of eastern Fairfax, representing about 40% of where people start their trips. Uh, the difference you see here is that Arlington and Alexandria show up as a major origin spot, and that's a lot of folks essentially coming from the Rosenbosch and Crystal City corridors and heading back into Maryland from those jobs in Virginia there. And you kind of see the destinations again. A lot of people use this for through traffic. That's why you see 30% of destinations are ports, uh, points northeast of the D.C. metro area. And so that's really people who aren't starting anywhere in this region but are traveling through this. So this bridge has a lot of through traffic that utilizes it, which is, you know, uh, we'll talk about as we get to the 301 and some other bridges later in this discussion. Another bridge I wanted to highlight is just one of the core bridges. And I think this map here is kind of really important to look at. Um, the, the bridges in the core almost all start and end at a stoplight. And so if you take a look at the key bridge, you see it's Route 29 crossing the Potomac River. It's coming from the Roslyn area, which is a very, very dense, probably one of the densest areas in the entire region with 20-plus story offices uh, for blocks. And there's several stoplights right there uh, at several interchanges. And then when you get across the bridge, you run smack dab into another stoplight. And so I really highlight this, and I think this context is important to understand that when we're talking about the bridge crossings, there's not a lot that can be done with regard to these bridges in the core. The ones that really go from Virginia to D.C., in a perfect world, it might be ideal to widen them. Um, but D.C. has no interest, and as the Secretary said, they own the river. So that's problematic in itself, but even more problematic is on the other side, you run into a grid of city streets. And those city streets have 20-story buildings and very, very expensive real estate, and so you're not going to be able to widen those in any effective manner. Um, so you could really widen, for example, the key bridge, but all you're doing is making it faster to get to a stoplight that's red. And that doesn't really, isn't going to be of much utility moving forward into the future. 
And so this again is just a key bridge. It shows you that you know there's much lower usage on this bridge. It's a, I believe a four-lane bridge. You have about 6,000 people coming from Virginia back in D.C. And again, those are likely folks working in the Roslyn-Balton corridor heading back to their homes in D.C. You have about 9,000 folks, a little bit more, coming from D.C. back into Virginia there. And you can see the travel speeds on this uh, facility really going from Virginia into D.C. are congested, and that's that red light that I was talking about. You really just, it backs up onto the bridge because that red light is only a few hundred yards um, on land. Probably not even a few hundred, I think it's a hundred yards uh, into the land. Just one for the record, uh, on that, going across the key bridge, that also looks at the question of how do we plan long term? Because when they plan metro, the ideal, ideal situation would have been to have a metro stop in Georgetown, which is on the other end of that bridge, which was not done for various reasons. So taking a long-term look at this, I think is very important as we make these decisions going forward. And just for other board members' context, you can see the Roslyn Metro at the bottom end of that map there. And what Mr. Dykes referred to is there were discussions and potential plans to have it go kind of north and to have a stop in Georgetown but the ultimate uh, construction of the metro actually has it more kind of going to the east, and there's not a stop at all in that section of D.C. Uh, thank you. Nick, do you remember what the pedestrian traffic is across the Peabridge? Uh, so I don't remember the exact numbers, Ms. but there is a very, very high volume of both bicycle and pedestrian bicycle traffic. And Yes. Um, and I believe it's actually around, I think on a daily basis, about five to 7,000 people. That's an accurate figure, five to 7,000. Um, and so the Arlington County has actually established a uh, counter. It's one of the only in Virginia that measure this traffic. And again, what you're really seeing there is kind of some of what Mr. Dyke talked about with the lack of metro there and this dense urban neighborhoods on both sides of the river. So you have people who live there and who find it more convenient to walk across the bridge because there's no transit connection and then you have people who also will take transit to Roslyn and walk across the bridge to get into Georgetown because there is no easy way to get there with Metro if you try and go into DC. You also have a very significant bike network that runs through the Roslyn area. It's called the uh, Custis Trail and that parallels I-66 and it runs, doesn't show up on this map with a level of detail, but it runs right by that Marriott uh, hotel you see there between that and 66 and so a lot of bicycle traffic also comes in from kind of the Arlington Fairfax corridor and they can go across the Key Bridge into DC. It's a very significant number of the crossings. You can walk and bike across that bridge faster than you can drive across. Yeah and that was the point. For some of us did an Arlington tour and I think that was a, a, an important point. So as we're looking at the crossings I think the pedestrian traffic is a factor. Particularly, Mr. Dyke, when we're not able to plan yeah. appropriately. That gets back to uh, ideological uh, decisions, and uh, I, I agree more, but uh, I can't tell you how many letters I have as do we have to build roads anymore that had bike lanes. I mean, and so the answer is it depends. <laughs> and I guess that's the way we'll be looking at it. Multimodal solutions have to be a part, depending on the situation. Uh, and Mr. Chairman, in the board, if you take a look here, you'll see really heading from Virginia northbound in the PM rush hour, 63% of all people are going to Washington, D.C. 
and the bulk of people are starting in Alexandria and Arlington. So 40% of those folks who use that bridge really are coming from right in that dense core area, kind of adjacent to it. And then with some folks coming a little further out from Fairfax, uh, I couldn't tell you exactly why folks are coming all the way in from Fairfax to head into DC there, but my guess is that crossing the Key Bridge is more convenient than using the 66 bridge. So I imagine they're taking I-66 in from Tyson's and other office space along the Dulles Corridor, getting off in the Roslyn area because they live in Georgetown or northwest of that in DC. Sean, I know we have a lot to go through yes, today. Sir. I mean, I'm not trying to, but we, uh, we probably need to uh, to where we can discuss some of the findings. But I don't want to, you are a plethora of knowledge, and you can tell that they have a pretty thorough review of where we are. Notwithstanding what Mr. Krasinski said, probably gotten worse. <laughs> so I'm going to skip to the summary of findings. Uh, I think the rest of the present slides just walk through the same types of discussions we've had for two more bridges in the Rossum Tunnel. Um, the key findings is the 495 and 395 bridges carry the highest volumes of traffic. The American Legion Bridge is far and away the most congested bridge uh, in this region, and without Metro Rail, crossing the Potomac River would be immeasurably worse and probably unfeasible in this region today and into the future. Uh, the other thing is you, the large growth that is projected into the future is not on those core bridges, but it's actually on the Wilson Bridge um, and the American Legion Bridge, with the exception of the transit bridges, where you see the VRE Long Bridge and the Yellow Line Bridge uh, carrying much higher volumes of traffic projected in the future. And so just some context for these findings, and this is going to lead to really the staff recommendations to the board based on this. As I mentioned, the Wilson Bridge was just recently replaced. And so, you know, at that, that bridge is really kind of where it's going to be for the foreseeable future. Um, we were actually only able to replace it because there was a, one, a single title in the 1998 Federal Transportation Authorization that provided hundreds of millions of dollars to Virginia and Maryland to replace that bridge. There were discussions uh, with the previous administration in Maryland about looking at expanding the Route 301 bridge. As I talked about, the Wilson Bridge has a high amount of through traffic, and that's people not starting in D.C. and not ending anywhere near the D.C. region. And so we were looking at expanding that two-lane bridge to a four-lane facility, and that was going to be likely toll financed by the state of Maryland. However, Maryland recently has reduced uh, their toll rates statewide, which uh, at this point, we're going to be waiting to see whether or not they still have the interest or financial capacity to finance an expansion of that facility. As was mentioned by Mr. Garzinski, the Rosin Tunnel is at capacity during peak hours. Uh, the Metro Rail Tunnels can take 26 trains per hour. I think right now they are running between 24 and a half and 26 trains through the Rosin Tunnel. So there's no way to run more trains through there. Uh, however, there are options to extend the number of cars on the train. So currently about 50% of all the trains on the silver, blue, and orange lines are eight-car trains, and 50% are six-car trains. And eight cars is as big as they can get based on the stations. And so we are figuring out if there's steps we can take with the purchase of these 220 rail cars to expand more of the orange and blue line trains during rush hour to eight-car trains. And doing that would give us about a 15% increase in capacity during those peak hours on the metro rail system, which is very important because there's significant crowding, particularly on the orange and blue lines today, um, and it's only going to get worse into the future. Uh, also, as I mentioned, the bridges in the court, they're, it's very unlikely that they're going to get widened, and it's questionable, in my opinion, the utility of widening those bridges because of the stoplights on the other side. 
the other thing is American Legion Bridge. Oh, I apologize. That's an old bullet that should have been removed, Mr. Chairman. So what we're talking about well, here that's is okay. No, uh, I think it is worthwhile. Maybe we jump. I, I can go ahead. I want to please jump over. Go back to the Raza Tunnel slide 18. I think it is worthwhile. You know, I wasn't. Uh, uh, and show them the graph. I think that is worthwhile. You go back to 18. Um, this one, sir. Yeah, I think just taking a minute or so to go through that. I was just uh, wanted to see because the Raza Tunnel is is, is very important. To, uh, to what you're going to recommend. And so, you know, here we are looking at the Rosslyn Tunnel. And again, this is in the PMP period. There's actually Metro placed a lower roll in river crossings in the PM. So it's 35% of all river crossings in the morning and 28% of all river crossings in the evening. And what you really see here is you have 44,000 people that come from D.C. and go across this through the Rosslyn Tunnel back into Virginia. So an average lane of interstate functioning well can carry about 2,000 cars an hour. So if you think about what that might mean if the Roslyn Tunnel were ever to, you know, if Metro were to say go away, you would need a 20 additional lanes of interstate capacity to be able to move the number of people in the Roslyn Tunnel from D.C. back into Virginia. There is nowhere to put that and there is no financial capacity to ever recreate, um, you know, those types of crossings. And so really, without WMATA, the growth that we've experienced in that region would not have been possible. And without addressing, really, the congestion in these tunnels in the future, we're really going to be hindering, potentially, future regional growth as there's additional growth projected both in Tyson's and the roslyn Balsam corridor through Arlington and also in central uh, D.C., which a lot of Virginia residents likely will commute to. Whitworth, uh, can the Rosslyn Tunnel accommodate a double-decker? Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, Mr. Whitworth, I don't believe any of the Metro Rail tunnels were built with the kind of concept of having a double-decker train like VRE has. It was built to a certain height and other specifications, and so there's a type of rail car that can fit through there, and it's all single level. Okay. Mr. Kuzinski? It's also not, <clears throat> there are problems once you get inside the district. Mm -hmm. uh, that Metro would face a challenge. It's not just as simple as, well, let's expand the Roslyn Tunnel. Right? Mr. Chairman, Mr. Krasinski, that, that is correct. So a lot of focus has been put on, well, let's get a new tunnel from Virginia, you know, into D.C., and that's going to address the issues. We right. wish it were that simple, but what you have is, it's not the, just the tunnel that has a limited capacity of 26 trains per hour. It's the entire system. So a, a track of Metro Rail can move 26 cars per hour and so if we build a new tunnel in DC we have to build a whole new tunnel all the way through DC that would serve that tunnel or you really wouldn't be doing anything other than having people cross the Rosslyn Tunnel and then getting stuck on the existing tracks in DC and so it would be very expensive to create a new Rosslyn Tunnel it will be even more expensive to build a new Rosslyn Tunnel and then build a tunnel underground DC to move those cars once they get into the district and so it's, it's not a it's not a simple prospect, and just with the highway bridge crossings, it will require significant coordination with the district, Maryland, uh, and the federal government, candidly. Okay, we'll get back to where we were. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Mr. Chairman, based on 
a lot of what we've seen here, the staff really want to recommend to the board <coughs> that a focus for looking at river crossings be at addressing the issues at the American Legion Bridge. Um, it has the worst congestion, it has the largest projected growth into the future, the core facilities are unlikely to be, you know, widened as we see it, and so this is really an area where we think, uh, you know, effort should be focused. And there's two real options for addressing the issues at the American Legion Bridge from the staff's perspective. One is to really widen and extend the hot lanes on the American Legion Bridge, because the 495 express lanes end about two to three miles south of that facility, so to extend the hot lanes to the bridge, across the bridge, and over on the Maryland side of the Beltway, or to construct a new western crossing uh, kind of facility further out somewhere between Route 15 and 495. And so based on that, we did a little bit of analysis to understand what should be the highest priority today as we look at really dealing with those issues. So we really looked at how are people using the American Legion Bridge today, and this is using that GPS data. And what we found is about 14% of all trips in the afternoon rush hour heading from Virginia to Maryland, again, where the congestion is worse, are really starting in central Fairfax and heading to eastern Montgomery. And to me, I think that's really a lot of people in the Tysons area working, who are working in Tysons and going back across the bridge to their homes along the Beltway in the Maryland uh, side of the river. But we also then kind of looked at, well, when you look at the origins destinations by themselves without unpacking it, you see what might be a, uh, you see there's a lot of destinations in western Montgomery and Frederick and other places along the 270 corridor. You see a lot of destinations along Dulles and western Fairfax, which until you connect where people start and end their trips, shows that there might be a large U-shaped travel pattern. So we really dug into that and said, where, let's connect those origins and destinations to understand what are the travel patterns? So we looked at this and we found there's an L movement as well as kind of a U movement. And so what you're seeing is 10% of people start kind of along the Dulles corridor in Fairfax along the Dulles toll road or 66, then come in and go across the American Legion Bridge, but they don't go back out into Western Maryland. They actually still get off around the Beltway in the Maryland side of the river. We also then see there's about 5% of people who start past Dulles or right at Dulles come down the toll road, go across the American Legion Bridge, and again, get off somewhere near the Beltway on the Maryland side of the river. There's also about 6% of people who start in Tyson's area, go across the river, and then go further west into Maryland. So they, they take the 270 interstate, which is kind of Maryland's version of 66 in a way, if you will, further west uh, into the Maryland area. And there's about 1% of people who go even further out into Frederick and places about 30 miles up. Um, that corridor into Maryland. And so that's about 22% of all the traffic that uses the American Legion Bridge today does what's kind of an L-shaped movement where they really go far on one side to the west of the river, but they don't go west across the river and west again. So they're really starting or stopping you know, somewhere near the American Legion Bridge, either on the Virginia side or on the Maryland side. We then also took a look at, you know, well, who is starting to the west, using the bridge, and going further to the west. And there's about 4% of trips that start in the Dulles Corridor, come down the toll road, go across the bridge, and then head out uh, Maryland 270 into uh, western Montgomery County. There's a very small percentage of people who then go further out, start in the same area, and go further out into Maryland. Um, what's interesting about, and this is not the updated version, 
presentation. Uh, it's about 1% then that also starts in eastern Loudoun and goes to western Montgomery County uh, there. And so overall you have about 5% of people who start west of the American Legion Bridge, travel down to it, go across it and head back west into the Maryland side. And so overall about you know 40% or so of people using the facility are kind of starting and ending somewhere either along the American Legion Bridge or to the west of it. But the large majority of those uh, really would, are focused on the American Legion Bridge because their origin or destination is near that facility. Okay. Mr. Chris, I would also point out here that again, with the dating, uh, the dating of the data, since the data, the Silver Line has opened. Mm -hmm. It's going to, it's going out to rest and going all the way to Dulles, and that's going to be continue to be an employment hub for economic development in Northern Virginia. And on the Maryland side, it's the same thing. They eye their 270 corridor mm -hmm. as their biomed corridor, and there's expansion going all the way out to Frederick. So it gets exasperated. Yep. And unfortunately, the purple line only goes in Maryland and Jackson counties, doesn't come over and connect to Northern Virginia. Exactly. On the U-shaped um, trips, which are, I think, arguably most controversial in Northern Virginia as relates to the bridge options, uh, I think it was a study done approximately 10 years ago, the traffic study, 2004, 2005. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chester, there was a origin and destination survey that was done in the mid to early 2000s. Yes. How, how did those percentages track? So I think on a high level they track similar. I don't recall the percentages, so I'm sure there's some difference between those percentages. Again, that study was a license plate um, type of study, but I think from a high level basis, a lot of the similar travel patterns were found at that time. So over that 10 year period, we didn't see significant growth in any of those categories, specifically the U-shaped traffic? Not that we changed the high level or kind of findings. Again, I don't remember those specific percentages. I haven't looked at that report. In fair amount of time, so I don't want to say, I'm sure some things did change, but I think again at a high level. Uh, for our benefit, looking at the historic track of this. Yeah, but I think, Scott, when you do that, you have to look at what the employment figures are and also look at what's happened on Route 15 and the point of Ross Bridge, too. So that's a concern I have about our sacred 15, which we want to preserve, and I think that's starting to get more and more cut through the far west. There's a lot in here. I mean, there is, of course, yeah. yeah. And we, of course, we don't show that. And so, some additional considerations uh, here is this is just kind of showing you for today where the 495 express lanes end today in Virginia. And you can see it's pretty close to the American Legion Bridge. And then what you have is you have a lot of traffic going across that bridge um, that's really going to, in two different directions. Some of it is going east. And some of it is going to go west out Maryland 270, and that's that 270 spur you see at the kind of top part of that map. And you really have the kind of traffic of two interstate facilities consolidated onto a single one along this corridor, and so it really experiences some of the heaviest travel volumes and worse congestion. Nick, just one other side. Sorry, sorry. It's okay. No problem. That historically is the worst congested spot in the, in the metro region. Once you cross the Legion Bridge and get up near that spur, Maryland supposedly has worked on that for as long as I've been in Northern Virginia, 38 years. There, there's no improvement. And that, that's one of our challenges. We've done everything we're doing on our side of the river. 
get to the Legion Bridge. So this is probably a good time to mention that Maryland has publicly stated, uh, Governor Hogan, that uh, they're not interested in any additional water crossings. Um, and uh, in terms of building the roads in Montgomery County, that's not a top priority for their administration. So one of the things we're trying to do with this data is to say, okay, uh, we've got an issue. What's the practical solution? What can we work on to alleviate it in addition? Because uh, we always run into, or consideration is also the political as well as the transportation needs. So I think that's one of the things what Mr. Connie is trying to point out today is uh, what can we do to get start working on the problem? Uh, and that means it's the ultimate fix, but to start working on the problem, both transportation-wise and politically. And uh, building on the Secretary's comments, you actually see this slide. He, he uh, queued up perfectly for me. This shows you an area where potential western crossing uh, could be located at some point in the future. And what you'll see is you have several high-capacity corridors on the Virginia side that kind of come close to the river. And then you can look over the Maryland side, and if you look kind of around the Gaithersburg area, you'll see the, where the inter-county connector runs into Maryland 270. But then what you also see is there's not very much between 270 and the Potomac River on the Maryland side. So one of the issues, uh, as the Secretary said, is the Hogan administration has indicated they have, they're not interested in talking about a western crossing um, during their administration. That, that is the position that they have taken. I'm not placing value judgment on it one way or the other. But I think one of the things that we, as we took a look at these other considerations, is they don't have a highway to connect to yet on the other side of this bridge. And I think one of the things we need to look to as Virginia from Maryland to understand their level of seriousness about Western crossings in the future is movement to get a facility closer to the Potomac River so that when a bridge, if a bridge is built, it has something to connect to on that other side because right now you kind of end up in a pretty rural, undeveloped section of Montgomery County. And so Mr. Chairman, Based on a lot of the things that we've been talking about so far, the staff really recommend to the board that we come back to you in September and get your concurrence to direct us to go work, start discussions with Maryland about trying to extend hot lanes across the American Legion Bridge and up to the 270 spur. And really the, the basis for that is, you know, the origin and destination patterns show that today, uh, addressing the American Legion Bridge would provide the higher level of transportation benefit. As important, the Hogan administration, again, they were sworn in in January, so they will be here past this administration, has indicated they do not have interest in a western uh, bridge crossing. And so, and they also the synergies of really extending those hot lanes across there where there's opportunities for toll financing, which can help address some of the cost considerations, that that be the top priority for efforts in addressing the water crossings today. And I, one of the things I want to say is, as you've said, Mr. Secretary, this does not mean this is the final solution. I think there are issues, you know, with the Roslyn Tunnel. There are still benefits from a western crossing. What we're saying is this is the highest priority based on the transportation and political as well as financial, candidly, considerations that we face at the moment. Uh, so again, oh, should I? No. Go ahead. No, 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 please. And I was just going to say uh, we've had some discussions in Northern Virginia at the uh, VDOT with Helen and others about what we thought would be or what they thought would be the best possible you know, new river crossing. 
And I think ultimately we're going to have to deal with that question. I think this recommendation is more practical as to what we ought to do now. Mm -hmm. And my suggestion is, one, is that we move ahead aggressively with this, with Maryland. But I think we also ought to move ahead aggressively with working with the business community. Uh, I actually had a discussion yesterday with the Greater Washington Board of Trade, which is a regional business uh, organization up there. They are very much interested in, in supporting this effort. And I think we need to be reaching out to the Montgomery County Chamber, the Fairfax Chamber, uh, the Maryland Chamber, and to get the business community to also advocate this because they recognize the statistics that you've talked about here. And this has to be as much of a business economic development issue as a transportation issue. And so I would urge us to move quickly on that if, uh, as part of our plan going forward. And obviously I'd be happy to help in any way to support that. Uh, well, Governor McCullough has made clear he would entertain and, and uh, additional water crossings. Uh, on the other hand, he's made clear we have issues up here and he'd like to have a solution. And again, I think this is pointing us to politically and, and where we are. Uh, uh, I think the right administration can have those. I, I think VDOT needs to be careful. VDOT cannot advocate for a road. Uh, it can give information about the road. But the administration can, and we have continued to outreach uh, uh, and work with them. Uh, hope, you know, look, uh, have a good relationship with our Maryland counterparts. They have a different view right now on this, uh, so we're going to work with them on what we can get accomplished. Yeah, so this, this would be a parallel track. Yes. And there's also the precedent the fact that these various groups that I mentioned have worked together and worked together on the Purple Line issue. They came together very nicely to advocate for that, and I think had an impact on the final decision, so we can get that geared up on a separate track. One of the tenets of government calls policy is you've got to have local support. And so, and, and that's so, the more local support, the better. Couldn't agree more. Mr. Secretary? Yep, Mr. President. Our next step, I guess, is, is really to have Nick present a recommended resolution for September for our consideration. That's correct. And I, I, I uh, agree with Mr. Dyke uh, that the priority is certainly the Legion Bridge and what they are willing to commit to to make that happen. But also on a parallel track, not let Maryland off the hook on just saying we don't want to discuss it. <coughs> so I would hope that would be kind of part of the resolution. I'm not saying it has to be here, there, or wherever. There's a 40 mile stretch between Point of Rocks and the Legion Bridge. Uh, but I, I think we can't lose that focus. We have to be the leader. We have to be the signal. I think we can certainly say we can encourage in terms of continuing to look at the growth and demand of the region as to what would be needed right there. So I certainly understand where you're coming from. So on this issue, we talk about growth and demand. We've looked at a 10 year track prior. We haven't seen significant increases in this U shaped community that exists. How do we project for the future based on some of the issues Mr. Garcinski referenced that growth of Tyson's Corner? Um, planning dollars are scarce. Uh, relationships with surrounding jurisdictions are challenging. Um, does it make sense to continue to pursue something that Maryland doesn't see any for and will not ultimately fund? And do we have any projections that would substantiate the need for the other crossing other than kind of our anecdotal observations of business? So let me ask, I'll, I'll respond to that. Uh, we're going to be driven by transportation needs. I mean, we're going to be driven, and as the data presents itself, uh, then we will at 
least this administration, numbers made clear, we're going to be driven by that. Uh, clearly, uh, we think the American Legion Bridge is something that needs to be addressed. Um, where that goes after that, can we continue to look at options in the quarter? I think all options ought to be on the table. And the governor would suggest that we want to preclude anything, just like we've been our, our policy and as we looked at 66 and other things. Uh, so I think there are, come to understand in Northern Virginia, there are pretty uh, emotional uh, 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 you know, feelings on both sides or positions on both sides of the issue. We're going to try to focus on the transportation and, and where that leads us, that's where we'll be driven to go. You know, I think I was anticipating perhaps your question, but is there political will in Maryland for the hot lane across the bridge and you know onto 270 from uh, your early discussion? What I would say is we're if the board concurs with the staff recommendation, we're at the beginning of a process. Right. And I think there's gonna be lots of discussions uh, throughout this. There, there's no environmental work that has been done to extend this year. Um, really, I think we are just at the nascent stages of being able to have more concrete discussions with the folks in Maryland. But even if we, uh, in the next meeting, they said, we're in, let's do this. This is a 10 plus year initiative that we're talking about here. There would be several years of initial studies. There would be then the environmental work that would need to take place. And then the really tough work of figuring out the dollars and cents. Okay, well this is a good presentation, Mr. Donahue. This is a topic that uh, that uh, is very much on the minds of many uh, people in Northern Virginia and also, um, you know, our, our surrounding localities because if that region is going to prosper, we've all got to work together with a lot of what's other water crossings and what have you. So, that's the position that Governor McCullough has taken, and uh, we'll, as I said, we'll continue to tout what we find on transportation needs of the area and, uh, and put those forward uh, with, our, with our sister jurisdictions up there. Okay, Mr. Donnie remains on the podium, uh, and uh, this one should be a little shorter, but we wanted to give you an update of, of uh, we follow up from last month where the board did adopt the House Bill 2, sort of the process of now how this officially gets going, Mr. Donahue. Uh, members of the board, this is, uh, as I talked about when we were considering, when you are considering the House Bill 2 process last month, what we have done is you've adopted an evaluation process. We still have a fair amount of work to do to develop a programming process that works in tandem with this evaluation process. And so staff want to come to the uh, board here and really present some recommendations and options for how we move forward with the six-year improvement program under the, you know, the new framework of House Bill 2 and the changes to the funding from, from this past legislative session. So just some historical context from our perspective is in the past we've historically updated the entire six-year program on an annual basis where we really program entirely the new six-year that gets added on. So you know, two gets bumped up to one, six to five, and then we add a new six-year to the program and we, we fully fund it each and every year. Uh, what that does, because you're adding a, a certain amount of funding, is you tend to really be funding projects on an incremental basis or a phase-by-phase -phase basis. So you might see money be added to a new project for PE in year six or partially to fund right-of-way or to fully fund construction in that year six, but we're never 
we're never fully funding projects. We're essentially kind of incrementally pushing the ball forward on a lot of these projects. And what can also happen is administrations change and boards changes. You may have projects that get funded for a single phase, but then sit years before they ever get funding for the right-of-way or construction phases. And so you have a fair amount of projects that are kind of halfway through the process waiting to figure out whether or not they advance fully to construction. I think one of the other things is because of the, all the different funding sources that we had before the funding formula update and the way things got funded by phases, it was really hard to follow the money and to understand which projects were getting added um, and how they were being added. And again, some of the funding formulas also led to in staff's opinion, instances where you kind of had what the commissioner has lovingly referred to as I'm thinking about you projects, where there would be a $10 million project that $100,000 in the sixth year of the program would be added to, and $100,000 doesn't do anything for a $10 million project other than make the project sponsor feel better about it. So in effect, we kind of, by this incremental funding, sometimes spread funds around in a way that could advance projects, but it helped keep peace in the valley. So politically, it really solved a lot of issues, but it wasn't necessarily the most efficient use of transportation dollars. We've experienced a fair amount of change due to legislation, though, in the last two years. And really, I want to talk about you know, the 1887, the Governor's Omnibus Transportation Bill. Under that, we've really scaled back the number and types of programs uh, that are available. And so there's going to be three major you know, funding categories that have, the board has a fair amount of discretion in. And that's going to be the state of good repair projects, you know, rehabilitating, replacing bridges, as well as fixing deficient pavements, the high priority statewide construction program, and the construction district grants, which will be distributed again to each of the nine districts for the House Bill 2 competition within that district. We also have a set of specialized um, programs that exist, so the revenue sharing program. And these all have very specific rules that really kind of constrain the programming uh, flexibility of the board. You have the safety program, uh, the air quality program, uh, funds controlled by MPOs, and then the transportation alternatives program, which really focused on bike bed types of projects. And some of our major new funding categories, with the exception of specialized ones, they require significant evaluation processes. So for the state of good repair uh, program, VDOT by law is required to develop a priority ranking system and to project forward the current conditions of the network as well as the future condition based on how they program those funds. For the HB2 programs, there's a lot of coordination that we're going to have to do with the local governments as they develop these projects. And then in-house, there's a heck of a lot of work we have to do once the projects come in to be able to score those and be competent in the scores that we provide to the board and the public as you all develop your six-year programs, which is all a long-winded way of saying there's a lot of work that has to go into developing the program under these new proce uh, programs as called out by law. It's just a lot of work that in the past wasn't always required to be done and is going to add time into the process. And so some considerations that we'd like to put forward to the board is as we've talked about House Bill 2 with the local folks, the MPOs, as well as the VDOT staff, something that's come across very clearly is it would be very helpful is when we award funds to a project under House Bill 2 that we don't incrementally fund it. We fully fund the project. So the funds that are there, if you're the top scoring project, we're not going to give you funds for PE and tell you to come back in a future HB2 solicitation to get funds for right-of-way and then come back in a third one to get funds for congestion or construction, excuse me. What you would do is instead fully fund that project in that one solicitation. 
Um, I think that has several benefits. Is one, it really increases the certainty for the business community and the locals when they know that once their project has been selected by the board, it's going to move to construction. It's not that it was selected by this particular board in 2015 and maybe the board in 2018 doesn't like it and they're going to get halfway through the process and just hit a grinding halt. It's really, once it's in the uh, program, it's going to move all the way forward. It'll have all the money it needs to be completed. The other thing that this does is if we funded projects by phase, under House Bill 2, when we awarded all the money available in a given year, we put it all in PE and right-of-way, well, we've kind of dictated what the next round of House Bill 2 is going to do because we've, we've funded half of a set of projects, and the next year's money, if we were using the money efficiently, would need to go to fully fund those projects. And so why would you even do another solicitation if you have a set of partially funded projects sitting in the program? And so we really want to talk to the board about whether or not doing this on an annual basis under House Bill 2 is the most efficient way to move forward. But just a, one other consideration is well, this chart shows you the average annual funding in FY21 in each of the construction districts, the construction district grant program. And there's not a lot of money if we were going to be fully funding projects on an annual basis at the district level. So, for example, in the Hampton Roads district, there will only be $35 million. Any project we picked, if we were to fully fund it, would have to fit in that $35 million bucket. Um, and, you know, in Northern Virginia, it's a little higher, um, but it only goes down from there. And it goes down to $10 million for, you know, the whole district on an annual level, which really creates some constraints about the type of projects that can be considered, also the number of awards that could be made within a district. And so what staff would like to recommend to the board is that over time, and this, there would be a transition period that I, well, we would recommend to the board, we really move to kind of a, a biennial uh, process for programming the HB2 funds. There will still be annual updates to the six-year program, but different funds would be considered um, in given years. And so what we'd recommend is in the even years, you'd really look at a lot of those specialized federal programs, the transportation alternatives, the safety funds, the air quality funds, as well as the revenue sharing funds, and in that year, you would allocate two years worth of those funds, as well as um, in state of good repair, we're going to get to kind of later how that would be handled. And then in the odd number years, you would focus on the two HB2 programs, and again, you would award two years worth of money on the odd years, but during the even years, no allocation would be made of those funds. Uh, the State of Good Repair uh, program, the, the commissioner and his staff are going to be coming to the board with some recommendations on how those funds be allocated, but that would likely be on an annual basis just due to the kind of the evolving nature of pavement conditions and bridge inspections and the, how those conditions can change with uh, bad winters and other things. And we also recommend that there would be a transition period to really move the board to this construct that would cover the next update and the update after that there, because I don't think this is something you can transition to kind of overnight. There's some benefits that we believe could be realized uh, through this. First, it would really allow the board to make full funding awards of projects, and it would allow you to award to multiple projects, likely, in given districts, as well as on a statewide basis. It also, in our opinion, increases the certainty of funding, because you'd only be updating the HB2 programs every two years, instead of every year, um, and a lot of times, if you the more you go in there, the more likelihood is that you know, the certainty could be disrupted or funds could be moved around in a given program. It also increases the amount of funding, allowing the board to send a larger 
as well as smaller projects, both the district and the statewide level. And I think the last two bullets here are really important is it provides a lot more time for the department of VDOT as well as DRPT to work with the locals on project development to really hone and you know look at these projects. And one of the things the secretary's talked about a lot is a major benefit of House Bill 2 is we're really making sure we're building the best project to meet the transportation need. And sometimes really fine-tuning projects is going to take time. And right now, if this is on an annual basis, there's going to be a lot of pressure to compete at the local level. And there's concern that we might not get the best project development um, if their you know, local governments feel they have to compete on an annual basis because the staff is going to be under pressure from their board, rightly so, to get that project in so we can try and get some of those funds. The other thing that it does is it can increase the you know, oversight ability of the board because you'll have these off years to dig deeper into how are the programs working, are we seeing the outcomes we want because you won't be programming the funds in that given year. So it creates kind of the ability to look at things in a way you might not be able to do when you have to program them annually because any change might affect an ongoing programming process. But that one year delay really creates an opportunity there for you guys to have us come back to you and present to you in more detail how these things are working. And so what we would recommend as a transition period is, as the board will recall, we deallocated a fair amount of funds uh, before the House Bill 2 process as required by law from projects that weren't fully funded and through the NEPA process. And so there's kind of a backlog of HB2 funds sitting in the program right now. And so even though it's an, kind of the odd year where we're saying in the future we would recommend only the specialized programs and revenue sharing, we would recommend in this next update, you know, the spring of next year, we would program all of the HB2 funds kind of from FY21 and prior through, you know, cleaning out 16 to there because we have funds in every single year. You would also kind of program all the specialized programs uh, through the end of the program, but you wouldn't start doing multiple years of revenue sharing just yet. So I don't think the locals have been giving the heads up or leeway to develop larger applications, and there may be folks who are planning to come in in FY18 who would be caught off guard and be left unprepared if we were to allocate two years worth of revenue sharing funds today. And then in the FY18 program, we would start to generally transition to the recommended kind of biennial cycle and we would allocate two years worth of the HB2 programs, which again would be the last two years of that program, so 22 and 23. And again, you would allocate just a single year of revenue sharing to catch it up and kind of fully program that so that in 19, if the board concurs when the full transition to this biennial process would start, you would, up, you would program both the 19 and 20 years of revenue sharing. So this, these next slides show you what the funding availability would be under this kind of uh, biennial construct if the board would like to move forward with it. So in this next update, there would be approximately 600 million in high priority projects as well as 600 million available between the nine districts for the district grant programs. And uh, this does assume, and I apologize, I should put an asterisk up there, that some of the resolutions related to the uh, 460 settlement that the, the board act in the affirmative on that resolution, which would put several hundred million dollars back into the six-year program. Um, there's also about $300 million in the specialized uh, federal programs, safety, air quality, uh, transportation alternatives, and there would be $150 million available for the revenue sharing program. Then in 18, you would have about 
$400 million in high priority projects at the statewide level. And again, that's kind of a two-year amount. So we're going to be working with that moving forward. And another $200 million with the district grants and $100 million in revenue sharing to be programming a single year. Now, if we were not to move forward with this, what it would mean is instead of seeing $400 million available kind of on a regular basis to allocate at a statewide basis or between the districts, you'd be seeing something closer to one ninety. <coughs> Or, or lower, you know, much significantly lower amount of funds. And again, we really as staff think that that could inhibit the ability of the board to fund maybe some of the top scoring projects or to make multiple awards in each of the districts, which we think is something that would be necessary to really move this process kind of forward, working with the local communities and the regional MPOs. And so uh, the staff really is recommending to the board that we switch to a biennial update of the HB2 programs as well as the specialized programs. Um, and regardless of whether the board concurs with that recommendation, we recommend that we work with you all to develop a resolution that really outlines how you want to move forward programming these funds so that we can create you know, the appropriate expectations with our local and regional partners who are the ones going to be putting forward these projects so they know how much money is out there to compete for, which will help inform them what they should really be putting in. Uh, there's some other issues dealing with the program that we still need to come back to the board to talk about. That's really the state of good repair recommendations, and that's where the commissioner and the chief engineer are going to come back and talk to you in detail about how we should be allocating those funds for bridge repair, pavement, uh, rehabilitation. And then also, we need to talk to the board about two kind of set-aside um, programs within the high priority and the district grants. And one is the smart roadway technology, which is kind of an intelligent transportation system, operational improvement category, as well as the unpaved roads uh, and how the board wants to handle those moving forward. The board can set aside up to $25 million for each of those on an annual basis. Uh, you're not required to set aside $25 million, but you are required to set aside something based on the law. And so we'll be developing additional recommendations on that and coming back to you all to discuss those. So I'll make sure you understand, for the next two years, we'll be doing HB2 scoring uh, during the trend, and then it will go to a, a biannual uh, scoring. I had a chance to speak this weekend to the Virginia Transportation Contractors Association, and really developed into making VDOT more efficient, and then they're having a more stable knowing when contracts get into the six-year plan are going to go to fruition. My guess is we'll probably have a little fewer projects in the plan but the ones in the plan will get done. Instead of everybody thinking we've got a lot of stuff going on and never gets the construction award because we never get it there because it gets stale on the permitting or what have you. So we believe this would be a, the most efficient way to make sure that the dollars that are spent are not, you know, I won't say waste, but inefficient. So the project goes from right through the environmental process, right through the construction of the project and work the whole bit. So that's what it's designed. Uh, and um, you know we have a transition. Um, uh, and uh, of course, in the latter years, uh, the amount of monies are going to grow uh, because as we get in, the outer years haven't been programmed yet. So this money will continue to grow, uh, assuming that uh, our six-year plan revenues uh, at the same level as they are. So. Yeah. Uh, this, um, uh, this is a terrific opportunity, I think, for the board and for VDOT to, uh, to 
take, taking a fresh look at the six-year plan, um, both from how we program projects, but also sort of the inside baseball, our administration, and how we, we have this buffet of, of uh, funding sources. Yeah, kind of the straightforward state funding sources, but there's a half dozen federal funding sources that go into the House Bill 2 process. And over the years, uh, it's become more and more difficult uh, matching up funding sources with projects. So some of this is also an opportunity for us to take a fresh look at how we do that and, and to what extent we put, we call it the color of money on a particular project as we're developing it in the six-year plan. That's going to help us quite a bit. You're going to see a different look and feel of the six-year plan documents. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like yet, but it needs to be more, it needs to be more understandable to the public. But the other part of this is that where I see the, the great success or opportunity for success here, once you program a project, that puts the department on delivery mode, and the six-year plan is really a capital construction plan, and we know that project is in there. We can count on it to carry, and our focus is not just to carry to the next phase and then hope for some more money. Our focus is to get that project completed in terms of <coughs> development, right-of-way, utilities, out the door, and deliver the project. As quickly as possible. As quickly as possible. So I really think this is an opportunity for us, and we will internally be able to put the, the cash on the project based on when we need it, but you will approve the project in its entirety, and then we will work the money to make sure that, that we can drive it, again, as quickly as possible. Yeah. Speak, speak kind of generically about projects that are on the six-year plan that never get fully funded. If we look back last 15, 20 years, do we have any idea the percentage of projects that have initial funding but never actually come to fruition? And that, that, that a huge number. A huge number. A bunch. Well, I don't know how much a bunch is, but we've had a Ford. Hundreds of these are planning money. Yeah, I'm having to talk about it. We've spent planning money and and then we need to build the project, or if we got around to building it, and the whole scope of change is outdated, we had to redo it over again. The, the other, uh, regarding the two areas that we're going to we're continuing to work on with unpaved roads and technology. In the technology area, the area that is changing so rapidly, we want to make sure that we're not investing in large ITS systems that will become. Uh, obsolete fairly quickly. Vehicle to vehicle technology is growing very quickly, so we're, we want to be very targeted and careful there. And the area of unpaved roads, and I think many of you know this, um, it is a very important thing at the local government level. Your county boards of supervisors in rural and even not so rural counties, uh, unpaved roads are a big deal. They will get more people out of a public hearing about an unpaved road than they will get for the widening of a primary highway in the county. It's, it's just, it, it's very important at the local level. So again, on the scale of the things that we do, it seems like a small thing, but for local government, it is a big deal. Just like to yeah. a statistic on that, our fastest growing county consistently in Virginia is the Loudoun County. They have nearly 300 miles of unpaid roads. Hmm. Yes. Scott, how many of those do they want paid? Uh, <laughs> most of them, uh, well, maybe one or two. <laughs> <laughs> no. Miss Allen, not. Real 
analyzing the scope of all the work that's done with NCDOT, do we have a sense of what an average um, project usually takes? If we went to a two-year model, would most projects be completed, or is there? From from the time we begin funding, we cannot start work on a project till there's funding source. Until there's funds right. on the project, in terms of the, the from the beginning to end, uh, the engineering effort is depending on the scale of the project, one to two years. The right of way and utility process is. I'm assuming the environmental document is done. The right of way utility process can be from six months to a year and a half, and then the construction process is typically a year to two years. The larger projects might be uh, maybe three years. So again. Looking at that schedule, you're, you're between three and six years from the time you start at the beginning to the time we complete it. But one of the things, again, we're using design build and some of these things so we really can begin to compress. Today, some of the projects that we deliver, the reason why it's, well, the length of time is largely not driven by our ability to deliver the work, it's based on the funding. Yeah. And today, and the, the code has not changed, that we must fully fund the project within a year of it being completed. So what fundamentally happens sometimes, we'll see projects that tend to be drug out over longer periods of time because all of the money is not going to get there. So it, it, it fundamentally drags the schedule out, and that costs me money with inflation, with repeated work, with its lost efficiencies. That's the key. Many of these, this, the time frame these give you have developed the average because the funding source. Now we want to get it to what is actually the work source. So hopefully you'll be able to compress that. Absolutely. Because those processes, you have to be rocking to not be but I mean those processes have come up because they've known, well I can only go this far. So now that's what we're starting to say is we got it funded here. Now we don't, you know, those processes are no longer the standard. The processes is what's the prudent standard working with the industry to deliver and hopefully they'll, you know, come to fruition. So we might see a few small, a, a few lesser projects, but I think you'll see more projects get done. It'll be a, a, a greater velocity, a less volume. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. In other words, the velocity getting them in, the next project comes up. The whole key is to getting VDOT to an execution agency and where they can get their supply chain, their vendors, their business plans laid out. Because that's one of the things I heard this weekend. Well, I get started, you know, I'm told I've been here for a year, I'm getting ready to come to construction. I'm getting ready to come to advertising. You know, uh, and, it, you know, they can't. They don't have a very good uh, uh, six-year plan as a guide to them. It's not a. It's not really a plan. So hopefully, it won't happen tomorrow. But over time, that's what will develop. Is more of you know, where the CTV is deciding these things are getting ranked are in there and VDOT's executing them. Our contractors like it because they have surety. That this is what's going to happen. They can plan their businesses better. But I think that, again, with funding not, not being the, the constraint, uh, we've got a, you know, recent examples of 29 solutions really went from dead stop to under construction in, uh, in not well under two years. So that's, you know, and that, that's not a, a, a model that we can't repeat over and over again. That happens to be a design-build contract. It functions a little bit differently. 
Design bid build tends to follow a linear progression in terms of the steps that you take. And that, that model suits us very well on, on many projects. Uh, the industry likes that model because there's some real certainty on terms of the product that they're getting. They know the right-of-way and utilities and the environmental work is done. It's out of their way. And that's a model that's, that's pretty solid for us. But even that, there's plenty of opportunity to, to compress that and, and even overlap some of, some of the linear process. Secretary, I, I think this is a huge step for us being good custodians of the Commonwealth's money. Uh, I, I think the amount of waste, if we really went back to the yeah. last 15 years, would be a scary number. Uh, I know many projects that would be bought right away and put a lot of money in the road and there would be both. We have a lot of land that probably never use, and, and the money we spend on environmental utility relocation and then the studies expire we have to get this is a great move uh, so we think there's a whole lot of ancillary benefits besides that, that can come and one of this and we're looking and I believe it will happen in all our procurement options design based build design build and decrease shrinking the time and all, all that necessary and, and the, uh, to getting the project to, to to, uh, to on the construction schedule. And that's really what we think. You look, the underlying, another underlying theme behind all this is how do we become more efficient? Well, you, you've helped address the political aspects of these projects sliding around a little bit. This is the next big step to make all those efforts you've done to really be enhanced significantly. Uh, time is money. I mean, time, in, in all our private businesses, and so it's the same with the Commonwealth. That doesn't mean you're reckless or inefficient, but it means that uh, you can have surety of what you're doing. So that, that's an underlying theme of, of some of what we're going to accomplish here. Question, does this change change the former structure of VDOT going forward from the standpoint of managing much fewer projects and spending our money in different ways as we move into this next phase? Um, in terms of workload, you know, we, um, most of our design work is outsourced today. Our, the folks that, uh, uh, within VI, we use some design, we have some design capability. By and large, it's put out to the industry. Uh, my thought, frankly, is we won't be doing less work. We'll be doing more productive work. Yeah. We will be, we won't be developing projects to a 30% stage and then hoping that we get more money. Or we won't be chasing an environmental document that Let's get an environmental document done. We might someday have some money. So I don't. Again, in terms of if you look at the the amount of money in the system and thinking of it that way, the amount of money in the system has not shrunk. It's actually expanding. So the workload is there. I just think it'll be more focused and more efficient workload. And again, I, it, uh, I can't tell you how many times I've pulled out a, a set of plans that was 20 and 25 years old. It might even be in metric. Back in the 90s, we were doing everything in metric, and, and we bought rulers and everything in metric. And so, I mean, we literally have plan sets that have been sitting on the shelf for that long. So I see that, again, that was just lost. That, that, all the effort it took to develop that metric set of plans, it, it's gone. It's gone. I can't use it. I can't use it. So I just, I don't see it's less workload. I see it more focused workload. 
Rose, uh, maybe a, a sort of follow-up tangential question to that. Um, so uh, I, I love hearing about sort of, you know, DDOT could be an action agency carrying things out, get these projects done. Um, my understanding is, is when you know, the recession hit in 2008 um, and, and DDOT had to reduce its budget, and some of that reduction focused on local offices, um, the residencies, and the districts. Turning into an action agency, do we need to, or is there going to be a focus on resources at that level? Because we have district grants, and we have those folks having to work with jurisdictions to accomplish this. Do we need to refocus some resources at the local level in order to better um, turn these projects around? We actually began that a couple of years ago. Um, I fundamentally disagree with some of the decisions that were made. Um, during the uh, around 2008-2010. Um, I wasn't here at that time, and so I can't, uh, there were reasons why it was done the way it was, but fundamentally to me, the, the uh, local contact, the uh, ability for VDOT to interact directly with the customer is so important. And what we did with the district offices and the residency offices by I'll call it compartmentalizing and basically reducing the scope of, of, of their responsibility, uh, I think took us in the wrong direction. So the last several years, we've really reinforced that the our uh, resident engineers, residency administrators, they are the local contact. They are the point of contact for local government. Now in some of our urban areas, that model's a little bit different. In Northern Virginia, we have folks specialized in each of the counties, they sort of act in that resident engineer role. But again, really pushing resources back to making sure at the district and at the residency level we have people that have the, the uh, skill sets and frankly I think we're, we're real solid there. But also the resources. So we're continuing to look at that, that model, um, some of our land development functions we're looking at moving that more back into the at the residency level. Some places it may not make sense, but especially in areas that have a lot of development work going on, we want to get that interaction as close to the customer as we can. In the construction area, we frankly need to make sure we have a, uh, a career path for state construction inspectors. We will continue to rely on consultant inspection. It's the backbone of what we do we also have to continue to develop the skill set for VDOT employees that understand how to build things and administer contracts and so that they they can be our owner reps on, on projects. So again, this has been going on for a couple of years now and, and every day we're looking at ways of getting the service level closer, uh, closer to the customer because frankly it was heading the other way and as our organization shrank, um, our staff needs to be more diverse in terms of their responsibilities, um, not more compartmentalized. And a lot of great effort from the folks at VDOT. Uh, they get it, and they are reaching across the aisle. They're, they're really, um, again, expanding uh, their responsibilities and not and not contracting. And, and Mr. Commissioner, I'm not suggesting that the cut occurred under your uh, tenure, but but no, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think that interaction. That's that's the usual, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where private developers, that's where jurisdictional work on projects is going to occur. And that interaction and enough staff there and enough resources, your customer service is critical to you know, positive relationships and productivity. 
between the parties. So uh, it's good to hear that you're focused on that. Thank you. So I was there on the CTB with this. I went and, and the CTB, uh, the, the DDOT was mandated by the General Assembly action to cut. Their mandate was based on political, maybe not so much the organization. So I can tell you from where we are, I don't buy that DDOT doesn't know what they're doing. And I'm tired of hearing uh, from that the private sector can always do it better. So that's what we're working on to make DDOT one of the best transportation organizations in the, in the country. In that. And I think we're on that. That's another part behind all this. That doesn't mean we don't have uh, private partners. But what it means is, is that we make informed decisions based on our skill sets. And so uh, this ideology that always that VDOT doesn't know what they're doing, that's not going to go anywhere with this administration. We're going to hold VDOT accountable just like we are and we'll make decisions as we were talking earlier about in, whether we're dealing with our neighbors on transportation and our uh, a, a valid assessment of our skill sets and we'll determine how we move forward. But that's the key. We, you know, we have a $5 billion budget. We have the ability to attract the best people if we choose to, and that's what we're going to do. So, just want to you know, point that out as you bring this up. I mean, you, know, you want DDOT to act like a business that's going to. That's what we're going to do in that regard. So, um, I appreciate the call, Mr. Rosen, but how would you like to be running a business where you're mandated a certain level? Um, and then expected to do. I mean, that goes back to that yeah. goes back to you know when that happens for political reasons, it's not yeah. necessarily a lack of skill set. It's simply a lack of enough people to to carry out the necessary work. And so that focus, yeah, I mean, the skill set and experience with that skill set at all, not much folks, but there aren't enough of them, and we're right. trying to carry out these projects very quickly. Then that's just something an area that may. So we'll, we'll be making decisions and recommendations based on business activities, skill sets, and what's in the best interest of, uh, of the Commonwealth uh, as we make our decisions going forward. Mr. Patrick, one last comment. I'd just like to suggest that I think this board benefits from an alternate year approach to selecting projects, um, giving us more time to research and be better prepared to make decisions. Obviously, some new complexities have entered this process. Okay. All right, Mr. Donahue, thank you very much. I think we have Mr. Moore here. Yes, sir. Oh, here. There you are. Hat back there. As, sure. as uh, Chief Engineer comes up, the next two reports, uh, I think uh, I guess the best way of describing this is you're going to see how serious we are about uh, maintaining and delivering our assets and improving safety on our highways. So again, uh, the Chief's going to start with a with a presentation. Uh, about our annual report, but then and then you're going to hear on our safety program. Good morning, Mr. Chairman and members. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, sir. Uh, the first thing that we're going to talk about now is the chairman and uh, Mr. Dyke, I believe, uh, an answer from uh, last month on you had asked the the present cost to bring our bridges and pavements up to a state of good repair. Some of that depends on the assumptions. So. We have two numbers up there in the first bullet under pavements is you can see it's 4.7 billion. The first bullet under bridges is 5.9. And what those represent is if we were to do it all in a year, that would take us up and you can see the assumptions. What we haven't done to that number is uh, 
try to adjust it because if you do things in a single year or two, your supply and demand gets skewed and would knock your numbers up. So that number's there for a present cost, but we would typically do this and have to bring the industry up to additional capacity and come in from other states to do that. If you look at the other two bullets underneath each of them, we did it a different way and said if you kind of put a spike in for two years, what would it cost that way, and then what would be the steady state after that, and that's the third bullet. So hopefully that answers the question. Yes, sir. And it's a large number, and we're still working towards getting there. And you can see the issues down there that we've talked about. Yes, sir. Did you break that down by district by any means? We didn't. We didn't. And as many of you know, and I think I've reported in other ones, that some districts are in much better shape than others. And I can do that and bring that back if you want. One of the things I'm going to get to in the annual report is we will be continuing to bring you reports and updates so I can make sure that's in the future ones to do that. Moving down to the annual report, we do an annual report already to the General Assembly, and this is required in House Bill 1887. This is the minimum content. We think it's probably pretty good, but the reason we're bringing this to the board right now is that it's required that the CTB specify what goes in the annual report. And what we will do in September is we bring things forward and ask the board to consider this, see if there's something you all want to add. We think this is pretty good. You can see that it's heavy in state of good repair sorts of things. We already do some of this, and as Deputy Secretary Donahue mentioned, we are tweaking what we do already to meet the House Bill 1887 requirements and make sure that it meets those, and we will come back to you for a resolution. We will also be providing you more detail in how we are going to adjust our prioritization processes and get your concurrence and advice and direction on that. So I'm not going to go into each of these unless you have a specific question. We will come back, and if you want to take and consider it, and probably in September we'll ask for your concurrence and then give you more information as we continue to drill down in what we do. Will we have a chance to make recommendations on other metrics we'd like to see in September as well, or can we do that now? You can do it now or in between. Your convenience, yes, sir. And again, I think that we are trying to make sure we focus on the big things, especially with this. And you'll see that the annual report is more focused on the maintenance of our system. That's the big focus of this annual report is the condition and how we are maintaining our system. And a lot of the things we're doing have been an internal view, and it's becoming external, which is a good thing. And part of that is how we explain some things that are very detailed and bring that forward in a way that is an engineer speak that we can make understandable. Any other questions? Thank you, Gary. Thank you all. Right on time, Paul. Good morning. Chairman and board, very happy to be with you today. I'm Mark Cole from the Traffic Engineering Division, Highway Safety Program. 
So every four minutes in Virginia, uh, we have a crash uh, somewhere in our highway system. Uh, about every eight minutes, uh, somewhere in the state, uh, we have an injury uh, on our highways. Um, and unfortunately, uh, two times a day on average, uh, we have someone who dies uh, on our roadway system in Virginia. Uh, the gentleman uh, you can see there with the uh, bananas uh, in the picture, uh, his name was Fred Piratelli. Uh, a couple years ago, he was driving on Route 29 uh, down in Amherst County, um, needed to pull to the shoulder of the roadway. I was having some issues there. Uh, trooper pulled over behind him uh, with this blue light trying to assist, um, and they were kind of wrapping things up, ready to get back on the road. Uh, but unfortunately, a driver came along that wasn't um, uh, paying attention, uh, drifted to the shoulder of the roadway, and uh, hit both the trooper um, and Fred. Uh, the trooper was uh, severely injured, uh, but unfortunately Fred didn't make it. Uh, now Fred was an active member of his community. Uh, he was a deacon in his church. Uh, he and his wife had recently uh, took their life savings and started a furniture business. Um, and uh, the purpose of the story, um, Fred's family likes Fred's story to be told, uh, but the fact of the matter is that here at VDOT and the Highway Safety Program, uh, we spend uh, every day kind of looking at a lot of numbers. Uh, all the crash uh, records that happen, uh, the statistics, uh, that's how we spend our time. Uh, but we often remind ourselves that behind every one of those numbers um, and statistics, uh, we have a face uh, of a family member or a friend um, that's traveling our roadways. And so the purpose of the Highway Safety Program at VDOT is to try to make a difference and improve uh, safety through reducing crashes, injuries, and fatalities on our road system. Uh, so today, uh, glad to be here with you, and uh, we hope to talk about four uh, areas. Uh, the first is some crash trends in Virginia. Uh, the second is our state strategic highway safety plan. Uh, the third is some of the things we're working on uh, to address some of our focus areas. And then finally, a brief update on our safety projects. Uh, now, I didn't go to Virginia Tech. I'm actually an NC State Wolfpack guy. Um, okay, it's a good picture. I was going to say you're able to stay up at the podium. Yes, but um, you didn't go there. And, and, and I'm married into a family of Hokies. Um, and so I often incorporate this picture into my presentations because when Lane Stadium in Blacksburg um, has a big game and it's packed out, it holds about 66,000 people. And that's the same number of people uh, that every year in Virginia we have injured on our highway system. So it just helps give you a visual representation of the magnitude of the highway safety issues that we all face. Um, over the last um, number of years, um, our total number of crashes has remained steady at about 120,000 plus or minus a year, um, about 60 to 66,000 injuries a year. Um, and if you look at whether the crashes are occurring on the VDOT maintained system uh, versus the locally maintained system, you see that about two-thirds occur on the VDOT uh, maintained system and a little over a third on the locally maintained system. Uh, the good news is uh, some progress has been, uh, is being made over time in Virginia and across the country um, at driving down the number of fatalities and our most severe injuries. Um, if you look at the last uh, decade of deaths on the left-hand side, uh, you can see that we saw a peak in deaths in 2007 of over 1,000 people. Uh, last year in 2014, uh, we uh, had 700 deaths, which is still way too many. 
but it is um, the lowest number of deaths um, that uh, we recorded since we began uh, reviewing this back in, in the 60s. I uh, will say that so far in 2015, uh, we have seen a um, slight uptick in the number of deaths. As of yesterday, uh, we're tracking about 15 more deaths to date uh, than this point last year. So we are uh, continually uh, looking at that and trying to review um, those numbers. Um, on the right-hand side of the screen, you can see um, a very large reduction in the number of severe injuries uh, over the last decade. As I mentioned, we have 60 to 66,000 injuries a year. The most severe of those um, typically result in a person being transported from the scene in an ambulance. Uh, that's what we're looking at here. Um, in 2005, uh, we had about 22,500 severe injuries. Uh, last year in 2014, that number was down to uh, just under 7,600. Uh, so we are very happy uh, that that number has been trended down. Um, certainly, uh, VDOT, and Department of Motor Vehicles, Virginia State Police, um, our efforts to play a role in reducing that number, uh, but also our private uh, partners, lots of people focus on highway safety, including um, our partners who, uh, in the auto industry uh, who are making a lot uh, safer vehicles. So as those newer, safer vehicles come into the fleet, um, fortunately it helps to reduce the severity of the crashes uh, that we see happen. Good. Yes, Mr. Whitworth? Uh, I, I'm interested in the definition of serious injuries, is that the same definition then that we've used in the prioritization um, uh, measurements? Uh, yes, yes, sir, it is. Yes. I hadn't heard that. Um, if you look at just VDOT maintained roads, um, this uh, uh, chart shows where the crashes are occurring on the VDOT system. Uh, a little over 20% of our crashes do occur on our interstate system. Uh, about 40% on our on our VDOT primary system, and about 36% uh, or the remainder uh, on our VDOT uh, secondary system. Um, if you look at the uh, locally maintained road system in comparison to the VDOT maintained roads, uh, you'll see that our local uh, roads have about 16% of our lane mileage and 18% of our vehicle miles traveled. Um, but we have um, a higher percentage of crashes and injuries that occur on the locally maintained system. Um, if you uh, think about it, uh, these are areas that typically have more congestion, also more driveways, more signalized intersections, and so uh, we would expect that we would have more crashes and injuries in those locations. Um, the um, other side of that is that because in our um, localities we're typically um, seeing drivers at a lower speed of travel, and so those lower speeds result in uh, fewer uh, deaths. Um, also, one thing that we look at is um, crash numbers versus the posted speed limit. Um, this shows you uh, basically, um, based on posted speed, where crashes are occurring. Uh, one piece of that that I have uh, noted for you is that on our roads that are posted at 50 or 55 miles per hour, uh, we see about a quarter of our crashes on those roads, uh, but a higher percentage of our fatal crashes. Uh, if you think about it, that's a lot of our quarters of statewide significance, um, our uh, higher volume, a little bit higher speed um, primary system. And so uh, unlike the lower speed um, environment in our localities um, or our interstate system that has wide shoulders and other safety measures, 
uh, we're often really focusing on those uh, roads that are kind of in between, uh, where you have a mix of uh, intersections, shoulders, things going on, um, also with higher speed uh, travel. Um, one in three crashes in Virginia uh, is uh, congestion-related uh, uh, rearing collision. About uh, one in four crashes um, is an angle collision at an intersection uh, when two vehicles travel in different directions uh, run into each other. Um, in one in five, or about 19% of our crashes are what we call fixed object off-road, where a vehicle leaves the roadway and hits an object like a, like a tree uh, or a guardrail or other. Uh, object. Um, on the right-hand side of that slide, you'll see uh, that while um, one in three crashes of the total number is rearing collision, uh, less than 6% of our fatalities um, are related to rear-end collision crashes. Um, also, uh, while one in five of our crashes is a fixed object off-road crash, approaching half of our fatal crashes are um, fixed object off-road. Uh, so one of the things I'm going to talk about today is our plan to address those kinds of crashes like fixed object off-road where you're more likely uh, to be severely injured uh, or lose your life. Mark, um, one, and, and I apologize for not warning you I was going to ask this question, but uh, regarding the fatal crashes, do we have a sense on what percent of those fatalities that the driver or the, the fatality uh, was uh, unrestrained, not wearing seatbelts? Do we have any sense in terms of of these, how many were not wearing seatbelts or percentage? Um, it's been running around 40% uh, are unrestrained, 40% uh, of our fatal crashes. Uh, it's a lesser number of the total crashes, but you're more likely, obviously, uh, that uh, it will result in a fatality. So about 38 to 40% of fatality. I, just, I think that, just, just to think about that for a minute, you know, uh, you're required to wear a seatbelt in Virginia. It is not today a primary offense. But 40% of the people who were killed, it's likely that, that the cause of the death was, the cause of the death was they, they struck something, but they may well have lived if, it had not, if they'd been wearing seatbelts. It's just startling in this day and age that we still have such high numbers of, of folks that are dying because they're not wearing seatbelts. Um, so in Virginia, like other states, we're required to have a strategic highway safety plan. Um, ours uh, was published a few years ago and runs through 2016. Uh, the vision of the plan is to move towards zero deaths on our roadways, um, and our target in that plan is to work to reduce uh, fatal um, and injury crashes by 3% per year uh, through 2016. Uh, we're currently, uh, just to note, um, engaged in discussions with DMV, state police, and other partners to um, start developing our next plan um, after the 2016 period. Uh, some of the emphasis areas in the Strategic Highway Safety Plan, uh, we do have others uh, like unbelted, speeding, and alcohol uh, enforcement. Um, those, um, VDOT is not the lead agency. We're a support uh, agency uh, for those emphasis areas. Uh, but these three uh, uh, emphasis or focus areas, VDOT is uh, the lead um, in working to um, address these. Uh, the first is roadway departure crashes, second, um, intersection crashes, and third, uh, bicycle and pedestrian safety. Uh, bike and pet safety is currently not an emphasis area in our existing plan, uh, but due to the numbers increasing, 
um, and some other things we'll talk about, it will likely be an emphasis area in our new plan that we're, we're working on now. Uh, roadway departure um, is kind of an unusual word, um, so I wanted to include the definition here. Basically, a roadway departure crash is a crash that occurs when a vehicle crosses um, a uh, edge line uh, or a lane line uh, or leaves the, the travel lane. Um, over the last five years, uh, the orange line represents the number of deaths um, related to a roadway departure crash. Um, and the blue line represents the percentage of the total um, deaths um, in the state related to roadway departure. So you can see uh, we range from around 49 to 55% of our deaths are, are related to roadway departure. Uh, the good news is that um, last year uh, that number uh, was down uh, a good amount. If you look at roadway departure crashes uh, across our system, uh, you can see it's pretty spread out uh, between our local roads, um, secondary roads, primary and interstate. Um, however, uh, again, you can notice that our secondary and primary is where you see a lot of uh, the crashes that result in fatalities. Uh, one um, item that we're currently working on, uh, last year Federal Highway uh, worked with VDOT to produce what they call a roadway departure plan. Uh, where they took and analyzed all of our crash data uh, over the last several years and they um, gave us a set of recommendations that if we did improvements uh, we could see reduction um, in fatalities and injuries. Uh, part of that plan is to better delineate our curves. Um, a large percentage of our crashes occur um, in curved portions of our roadways. Um, so the plan basically lays out that if we did work um, replacing uh, curve signage um, and markings at uh, about 2,600 curves, we could see a 30 to 50% uh, crash reduction in those areas, uh, which equates to about 18 lives a year um, and 150 serious injuries a year uh, that could be reduced. Um, also, rumble strips um, are projects that we, we do on a regular basis uh, through the Federal Highway um, study um, and plan uh, that was provided. Um, a investment of an additional 1,900 miles of rumble strip um, is estimated to reduce about 40 to 60 uh, percent of our roadway departure crashes um, and reduce another approximately 12 lives and 400 injuries a year. Uh, the next area is um, the um, intersection crashes. Um, here you can see intersection uh, deaths over the last five years has been around 192 a uh, little over 200 uh, deaths per year, and that runs about 25 to 29 percent of our total highway deaths. Uh, very uh, balanced uh, with the number of crashes across um, our primary, secondary, and then uh, locally uh, maintained roads in the state. Uh, but you'll notice that uh, the primary system has 35 percent of our total crashes, but 57 percent of our fatalities. Uh, which follows uh, the trend that we've talked about previously. Um, so these are a number of um, different types of projects that um, are newer ideas that we're deploying in Virginia uh, to try to help address our um, intersection crash issues. Uh, the first is uh, flashing yellow arrows. Um, we've deployed a number of these now in southwestern Virginia um, and other uh, areas are, are also working on some of these. Uh, but for a modest um, cost uh, per intersection, uh, you can reduce a significant number of left turn angle crashes with the flashing yellow arrow. 
Um, also, uh, uh, retro-reflective backplate, uh, which is a backplate around the traffic signal head that helps make it more visible. Um, these are something that we're uh, beginning to deploy um, both in the um, western part of the state and in the Hampton Roads area, um, and eventually on our quarters of statewide significance. Uh, that once these have been deployed in other places around the country, uh, we've seen a 15% reduction in all intersection crashes and almost a 30% reduction in the severe crashes. Um, and then finally, um, a lot of the things that we do on a, a normal daily basis at VDOT have a big impact on safety. One of those is signal timing. Uh, by simply adjusting the signal timing, bringing it up to current standard um, and current conditions of the intersection, you can see a significant reduction I mean, crashes of up to a third of intersection crashes. Uh, the last of the uh, focus areas I want to touch on is um, uh, bicycle and pedestrian safety. Uh, you can see we've seen about 90 to um, over 100 uh, deaths that were pedestrian or bicycle over the last five years. Uh, that percentage of total has been increasing. Um, in 2014, 15% uh, of our deaths in Virginia uh, were related, uh, were uh, bicyclists or pedestrians. Um, if you look at where um, pedestrian and bicycle crashes occur on the network, you can see, as you might expect, uh, that over or about two-thirds of the total crashes occur on the local uh, system uh, with uh, very few on the interstate um, and then secondary and primary uh, at around 14 to 17 percent. Um, however, again, if you look at the percent of fatalities, um, our VDOT primary system has 14% of our total bike-paid crashes, but 34% of our fatalities. Um, the local system has about 40% of those fatalities, which is less than their uh, share of the total crashes. And again, it gets back to um, travel speed um, issue, which we have lower travel speeds in urban areas. and. Um, versus the higher speed uh, conditions on our, on our primary system. A uh, number of things that we're um, uh, promoting uh, project-wise in the area of pedestrian bicycle safety. Uh, the photos on the left-hand side is a before and after picture of Soapstone Drive in Northern Virginia. Uh, that was a road diet uh, that was recently done. Um, that uh, uh, national research uh, shows that road diet typically reduce crashes by up to about 45%. Uh, Soapstone Drive saw a reduction of almost two-thirds um, after uh, making that change. Um, also, pedestrian countdown signals, um, uh, high visibility crosswalks are something that, uh, that we uh, fund through the safety program. And in addition, um, you can see uh, the lower right-hand corner, uh, that's the green bike lane photo from uh, Lee Street in 12 here in the city of Richmond uh, that went in recently. Uh, green bike lanes are becoming more common um, to separate or provide uh, additional notice between uh, through traffic um, and uh, turning traffic and bicyclists. So. So with all these ideas and other safety projects, we've been really focused on delivering a highway safety six-year plan, um, funding projects that um, are based on our crash data and address those areas we've talked about, roadway departure, uh, intersection crashes, and bicycle pedestrian safety. Uh, the other thing we've tried to focus on are projects that don't cost a lot of money at an individual location, uh, like the flashing yellow arrow, which means you can do it at a lot of locations. So, um, it's really
really hard to drive down the overall safety numbers um, if you do major reconstruction at a few spot locations. So uh, by doing things that we can spread across the network, uh, we uh, believe that will have a much more impact on driving down um, our crashes. Um, as of June, we had uh, right around 200 active safety projects across the state. Uh, the left-hand side of the slide shows the distribution across the district. Uh, we have a, a number, about 109 in uh, the construction uh, phase. Uh, as of June, uh, 14 in right-of-way and another 76 in the preliminary engineering phase. Uh, we also have 61 uh, projects that are being administered by local governments and 138 administered by VDOT. And since 2004, uh, where we've deployed safety projects, um, uh, once we deploy and complete construction on a safety project, we look at three years of before crash data and then also three years of after construction crash data. And where 113 safety projects have been uh, deployed since 2004, we've seen a remarkable uh, decrease at those locations in fatal crashes um, and a 55% reduction in injury crashes. Um, we still have a lot of work to do. We still have 700 lives each year uh, that we're focused on and a number more injuries. Uh, very glad to be with you today. Um, be happy to answer any questions. Uh, Mr. Rose, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Quick question. Um, we talked about the, the fatalities and the reduction based on certain measures. Uh, rumble strips and things like that. Do we know, or do we have an estimate as to the total cost in injuries, healthcare costs, because of the wrecks? Do we at all gather that? Or did I miss that? I'm sorry. Uh, so uh, that's a great question. Um, we do uh, factor in uh, the cost of each of the different uh, crashes that we experience. Federal Highway uh, produces numbers to that regard, and we actually use those numbers to help determine the benefits of a given project, and we give priority to projects that have a higher benefit-to-cost ratio. Uh, currently, a, a fatal crash in Virginia, if you're looking at a safety project, um, equates to about um, $5 million um, in cost, um, which is the high end of the spectrum. Um, a property damage-only crash um, is valued at about, about $8,000 per crash. So when we look at the 13, the incurred delineation, rumble strips, $18 million, given the real cost of those problems, that's really a minor investment. Cor correct. And, and with uh, rumble strips, um, speaking from memory, I want to say it was a 30 to 1 benefit cost ratio. So it's not a lot of money to put those rumble strips in. Um, and so, it, you know, by reducing a few crashes, it, it really pays for itself. The, um, Highway safety is uh, uh, there's a there's a huge focus in our agency on on highway safety in, in all areas. But this really kind of this is a great data driven focused process. When we talk about the program, you'll hear the term HSIP, HSIP. That is the federal funding source that funds uh, nearly all of this work. And so it's an annual uh, allocation of approximately how much? $53 million. About $53 million annually. And again, you can see we can do hundreds of projects. This includes things like uh, also a, traffic, a new traffic signal. Many times it's funded through this program. But all, they're, they're all types of projects from what I'll call the kind of very simple adding rumble strips to, or adding a flashing yellow arrow up to maybe a turn lane project 
for um, uh, shoulder widening or guardrail upgrades and things like that. So it's a, it's a broad spectrum of things, and these projects go through a process of, with a cost-benefit of, of a process that has been well-established with Federal Highway. But the safety uh, reducing deaths and injuries, it's actually one of the performance measures that uh, I have an executive agreement with the governor that's signed by myself, by the secretary, and by the governor. And this is one of the areas of focus is reducing the number of, of uh, fatalities and serious injury crashes. And this program, you, you've just seen some of the things that Mark's talked about. There is, we can show direct improvement by some of the efforts that, that, uh, that we put forward. And uh, to the traffic engineering team, Ray Corey and his folks that do this as well as the districts, uh, you know, this is a real serious business that they do, and they do a very good job at it. Mr. Back from my days in the General Assembly, we were we were uh, we were operating at a reduced contribution from the federal government because of our lack of an open container law, our uh, seatbelt law not being a primary offense. So are we are we getting all that we should get now, or do we, do we still have all out there that are restricted in how much we get? There is a there, there's a portion there's a portion of the funds uh, that come to a separate subcategory called. Uh, open container, and uh, uh, so we're directed. Some of that plump money is directed. Uh, we actually use that money for safety projects, also. Some of it actually goes to DMV for safety programs. Um, and I have to ask uh, either Kim or Nick as to whether or not it actually reduces the total amount of funds coming. Nick's, Nick's saying it's the same amount, but but it but it does direct the open container fund is is managed a little bit differently. And we're going to come to you with some of the things that we're looking at on the open container side um, in the coming uh, in the coming months, looking at some quarter improvements. But to answer Mr. Wick, to request directly, there are still more reimbursement we could get if our laws, for instance, if a seatbelt were a first offense, we would be eligible for more reimbursement. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're, still we're maximizing. I think we're maximizing what we got, but sure. it would require a legislative change to get. I think that's one of the things that DMV continually has on its uh, on its legislative package, and we're still working on. These are pretty impressive uh, results. My question then uh, is, how do we? Uh, allocate or decide uh, where projects go. And, and Mark, maybe you can talk about the the relationship with the local governments and with with the districts and your and the traffic engineers around the state. How they kind of feed the pool of potential projects. Uh, <clears throat> sure, that, that's a great question. Uh, we basically use analysis methods promoted by the Highway Safety Manual, which is kind of a governing document that talks about highway safety issues. So that's a national publication. The, the Highway Safety Manual is uh, put out through uh, AGTO, that's right. and it's a national standard for highway safety improvements. And so we start by reviewing every uh, road in Virginia. We can review about 97% of the VDOT maintained uh, system um, and then our local roads to determine at each of those roads if they're having more crashes than we would expect to have based on the science behind it. Uh, so we develop a 
priority list based on that information that we provide to the districts who then review uh, those lists of roads to determine what projects might help in reducing the crashes. Um, and then they do enough work to determine that benefit cost ratio uh, we talked about earlier. Um, and so once a year, uh, we get a list of projects from each of our uh, districts uh, with the benefit cost ratio um, and the proposal. Um, and then we fund the projects that will have the biggest impact on driving down uh, the number of crashes. Um, we do lay out targets uh, for each of our districts um, that's calculated based on a combination of their percent of the fatal and injury crashes in each district, uh, the vehicle miles travel, um, and their lane mileage because we know that uh, crashes are very much related to uh, the vehicle miles travel number. Uh, if you plot those on a graph, they look very similar. Uh, so that, that's in general how we decide how much money goes to which area. Um, and it's pushed really two directions. It's the central office traffic engineering division kind of creates this, hey, here's a list based on the data, but also at the district level and even at the residency level, they're saying, hey, I've got a problem here. And so it's pushing it up from the bottom as well as, as, as kind of data coming out, and those come together in an in a application process. So let me tie this to what Mr. Rosen was bringing to earlier. I mean, and what Mr. Kilpatrick just said, application process. We're basically taking money allocated for a specific purpose. When I, I'm not so sure that every road off not to have these when you look at the total cost versus the benefit, but that gets into the run. There are many who believe that this is an extra cost. In other words, in other words, you see what I'm saying? In other words, we're got specific programs Mr. Rosen pointed out that, you know, if, if you look at the total cost of society, you know, it's much better to um, put these safety improvements in than it is to fund the medical and all the other costs of society. Yet that's not how, not just this particular issue, but a lot of issues are viewed. And so we continually here get the cost of the roads down. We may not be being the best of society, but we will get the cost of the road down. And I, I point that out because that's a continuing theme that we, we seem to see. Valentine, you brought earlier about pedestrians. And why are we funding pedestrians with, with highway monies? I think, so I, I just want to point out to the board, I think we're going to take a little different view as what's the right solution and what we ought to be putting in that, and that's what we're going to deliver. I think looking at our Commonwealth balance sheet, not just what is the actual road to put in, that may not be the cheapest thing for a commonwealth, even though it might be the less, the least cheapest for the road. Anyway, just, I think not doing a good job uh, of doing it, because I'll tell you, every time they put in something like that, somebody complains that you're over building the road. Anyway, so. but, well, just to follow up, then, does that mean that those two that we just discussed, the open container and the seatbelt, are they going to be on your list for this year going forward? Actually, it would be on DMV. It's on their legislative uh, proposal. They, they know where it's going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They know. I, Shelly knows where it's going. I would like to clarify that my points were in support of the. I understand. I, I, I understand that, but when you take, I'm only pointing out that it's how how you view the problem. Yeah. And if you're looking at the state's balance sheet versus, uh, you know, a particular section. 
And I think sometimes we make decisions when we're not looking at what is the total cost of the state because we're only constrained by you know, either political or other things and how, you know, how we should use monies. I think we're just going to try to say what is, what is the right, because many of these things, we, we, what do we do, what's that, uh, up around the, in Blacksburg, you put in the flashing lights, and then oh, the S-curves, uh, in Botetourt, uh, and the S-curves, and what have we gone down, how, what is it? It's uh, a significant reduction in crashes, I don't remember the percentage, but that's on I-81 where we use the, I'll call them the guide chevrons that are lit and guide you through the curve there that you've heard Mr. Brown speak about right. um, a number of times. So I think that's what we need to get back to. What are you know, what have we got and what can we use? So, Ms. Valentine. Um, you know, I think Ms. Rosen's point earlier today about what is the cost of fatal crashes to the Commonwealth when you look at the complete picture, the whole opportunity cost that we lose, and you look at a fatal crash being about $5 million or it could range to that level, and 40% of our fatal deaths are caused because an individual is not wearing a seatbelt. And you add that tremendous amount of money to the fact that we forego federal dollars for not having the seatbelt law as a primary sense. We could enact something and do something in Virginia that doesn't cost anything and could save us a tremendous amount of money. Yes. And you know, there are a number of us who've always supported it as a primary sense, and I'm not sure it even got out of committee. I think there are some Virginians who see it as a restriction on their their rights. So but it is a tremendous cost. I, I, I agree. I, I'm just pointing out that is gets to the heart of what I'm saying is is that are we looking? You know, what is the total cost to the Commonwealth for some of these decisions? Okay, Mr. Cole, thank you very much. Looks like we're heading in the right direction there. appreciate all the department's efforts uh, in uh, making our highways more safe. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yes. Okay, Ms. Brown. Yes, Chairman, members of the board, this morning I have a brief presentation to update you on our updated revenue sharing program guidelines. Um, this update is needed based on legislation approved this year, specifically House Bill 1887. Uh, House Bill 1887 modified the priority order for requests for revenue sharing funds moving forward. So the primary focus of this update is to reflect those legislative changes. Just a quick summary on the current priority order we have for revenue sharing funds um, since what was used for the last three years. Our first priority has been for those projects that will accelerate construction projects in the six-year improvement program or the locality's capital plan. Our second priority for funding has previously been for those projects that address sufficient pavements and bridges. And then any other projects not meeting those priority criteria were considered as funds were available. And our new priority order based on House Bill 1887 
will be, first priority will be those projects that have previously received revenue sharing funds. The new second priority will be those projects that meet an identified need in the statewide transportation plan or projects that accelerate a project in a locality's capital plan. The third priority will be the same as their prior second priority, and that is addressing deficient pavements and bridges. And then again, any other projects that were uh, did not meet one of the priority criteria would be considered as funds are available. There were some additional changes made in this update, primarily to clarify processes, um, address questions that we receive frequently, and based on some feedback we received from our district. And hopefully you received a copy of our um, mark version that showed all changes in the document that we are proposing. We also updated the application to meet the new priority criteria and to also um, let applicants tell us whether or not they also applied for House Go 2 funds so we can coordinate those efforts. Our next step moving forward. Um, this will be on the action agenda. We will be asking your approval of these guidelines today. Um, the new guidelines would go into effect August 1st and will guide our next round of applications, which will be kicking off early August of this year. So we will be sending out a solicitation to localities early August with an application deadline of October 30th for this year. And with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions you have on the updated guidelines or on the revenue sharing program. Any questions for Ms. Brown? Do we really have any, I mean, this is legislatively dictated. Correct, correct. Yes. As of July 1st, the law does indicate that we will prioritize a different manner. Thank you. Yes, Mr. Whitworth. Um, I'm not sure I fully understand uh, some of the changes that we've made on the application, but at, at some point um, we changed the language uh, that indicated that. Uh, new roads that primarily benefit uh, land development are not approved for revenue sharing funds. That was the old language, is that correct, on the application? We specifically said that uh, if it was, if, if new roads uh, were primarily for the benefit of land development, that would not qualify under revenue sharing. That was under the old program under the old guidelines. And that's always been language in the guide that new roads, we identify the criteria for new roads. And essentially any new roadway, the intent is that it serves the public at large. And, 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 so, and that language now has been changed, I believe, to say something to the effect that uh, uh, it, it, it is used uh, for the purpose of uh, Qualifying approach should provide an immediate benefit to the overall transportation network with a connection between two major existing. And, and there was already language, the sentences up ahead of that already have language indicating that it is intended to be something that provides basically a benefit to the existing traveling network. But we did ask that, we did add that clarifying sentence. And part of the reason was we did get a couple requests this year for applications that essentially would have provided dead-end roads to a development property. And that's never been the intent, and that we thought had been pretty clear at all prior guidelines. But we did add that additional sentence because we do want people to realize that 
if you're asking for public funds, it really is intended to benefit the public at large and not just to be a dead-end road into a development. Well, I understand it's not for a dead-end road, but my point is there are rural, there are rural communities, rural districts that now are measuring under HB2 development as a high priority. And the question is, if there is then uh, a primary, a benefit of land development benefit, that is not excluded, is it, under the new guidelines? No, we have quite a few new roads that are approved under revenue sharing that are part of a larger development, but as long, and particularly if they're building a new connector roadway that you know, connects to existing roadways, but it's also, they're developing all around it. That benefits both the community as well as that development. Under HB2 scoring, that is critical to the scoring process for the rural areas, is my point. Yes. I mean, this primarily is intended to make it very clear that a roadway that primarily just serves that development and no one else, and dead end is not going to be a qualifying. And we thought that was always clear. But because we did get two applications this year, we did make that additional statement. Can I just ask a Chairman, just a quick process question. On the new priority, the top priority is for projects that have previously received allocation. Um, since this is something new that will be implemented in these guidelines, would a project under the current fiscal year that has used revenue sharing money, when we then adopt this next year, project from this year, even if it's a brand new project, will be considered under having been funded, right? Once it's received a prior year's allocation, then it would be considered an existing. And, and so I'm just saying strictly this fiscal year, a project that might be new for a community or a jurisdiction in a rural part of the state next year. This it's current got, year it's got money. If you put money on it now, then it's called, it, it falls under the... Okay. And, and one additional... Um, point we tried to make in the new guidelines, we thought we needed to make this new provision. You know, throughout the year, you do get requests for revenue sharing transfers. So moving forward, we've made it clear that if you request a transfer for mid-year, then you would not be considered a priority for that next round because we don't want people coming in right before the application process and trying to establish a new project. So it would be a project that was existing as of the last time you approved a round of revenue sharing process. Thank you. I'm sorry, would, would you go through that one more time about the transfers? That because the new first priority is for projects that have previously received revenue sharing funds and are therefore already considered an existing revenue sharing project, right. that we did put language in the new guide that if you make a request for a transfer mid-year, you know, technically someone could come to the board in May mm -hmm. and say, I want to transfer money and create a new revenue sharing project. That new project would not be considered an existing revenue sharing project in order to become your first priority. It could still receive funding, but it would be measured under the other criteria and not as an existing revenue sharing project that would only be measured based on the last time you officially approved revenue sharing allocation. And we have not changed the deallocation timeline. No, we have not. Okay, any more questions? Okay, thank you, Ms. Brown. Thank Appreciate you. it. Uh, Kim, uh, Kim, Ms. Pryor, you're up. Do you need a couple minutes to set up?
I think you're okay. Okay, great. Uh, just so the audience knows, we will do this and then we're going to have our presentation on uh, 66, uh, FC 66, and then we'll break for lunch before the actual um, public session begins. So, so just to give the people the audience know, we're sort of ahead here. Um, I'm going to preview for you all today the House Bill 2 web-based application. Uh, Trent Park here is one of the developers and he's going to do the navigating for me. Um, they were really, I want to give them a lot of credit here, they were really given an impossible task to develop an online application for which we hadn't fully developed the policy or the requirements yet. So this is, um, we've come a long way in a short amount of time. So to get to the, to the House Bill 2 application, um, it is launched from the House Bill 2 website, which currently exists. Um, once you launch it, um, you enter your login credentials, as uh, Trent just did. Those will be distributed to eligible entities um, at upcoming training, and I'll give you a little bit more information on that at the end. Uh, this takes you, once you log in, it takes you to the home page and uh, where you can view your applications. Multiple applications can be submitted. You can see um, pending or submitted applications. Um, if you go to the um, About tab at the top, um, you'll see that we have provided, in a minute you'll see, that we've provided um, contact information for VDOT and DRPT staff so that if there are questions related to the, um, to the application process or data that's needed. Um, there's phone numbers and, and actually a person's name there, so you can contact somebody. Um, going to the organization administration uh, tab, there is one uh, administrator per entity who's eligible to submit applications. Um, the administrator can identify other users who are able to enter a review or submit applications. And on that um, organization administration tab, um, that information is shown. You can see, once it comes up, you can see all of the, the various users for an entity that have been identified. It appears to be a little slow today. Just to clarify, this isn't a test environment, so it is much slower than it will be in reality when somebody tries to enter an application. Again, there's, there's the um, administration page where new users can be set up and given permission. Was there a question? I have one question. Is the organization administrator primarily either the chair or the executive director of the NPO? It is whoever the entity tells us the administrator is. We've requested that information and the login credentials will be given to that person and that person can then set up additional people. It would probably be the senior, yeah. it would be the senior, the senior planner or the director themselves. It might be a planning director in a county or something like that. So it, it, it will vary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, then back to the home page or the applications, um, I'll show you how a new application can be entered. So when you click on adding a new application, you'll be prompted to pick the 
the, the high-level principal improvement type, whether it's a highway project, a rail, transit, bus transit, etc. And you'll have to give the project a name. And then a new application will be created.
We have applicant training scheduled for July 30th. This will be a WebEx, web-based training, so that we can get it out all across the state. We're asking that all of the eligible entities, all of their administrators, attend the training and we'll give them their login credentials and get them set up at that point. And then we'll also have a makeup training day on August 5th, just to make sure that everybody has an opportunity to get a tour of the application and have no trouble entering. So unfortunately, the demo didn't quite work, but the point is it's a very simple application, very straightforward, and we believe it really meets the needs of what the applicants will need to submit. And it will also allow us to automate the intake of data and tie it to our data systems to facilitate calculating the benefits and the scores. Any questions? Remember, one of the points of House Rule 2 and some of the concerns of localities, they didn't want to have to spend thousands of dollars getting an application together. So the intent of this is to make it very easy for people to get their applications in. And it's not going to be a glossy that somebody paid extra money for it. It's going to draw the attention of the score. They're all going to be standardized and go through an objective process. And I did make screenshots in PowerPoint of the, just in case this happens. So if anybody's interested in seeing that over lunch, I'll be happy to show that to you. We have an estimate of how many applications we've posted. Yeah, we think we're going to be quite a few. Honestly, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot. We know, for instance, one locality of 12 already. I suspect there are going to be hundreds. Yes. Yeah. I think the reality of it, some localities don't know how this is all going to work. And so I don't like to use the word Christmas list, but there will be some of that in terms of seeing how much they can get in and see how all the things that they may need, how they look, instead of some internal prioritization. I'm hopeful that largely the counties, the MPOs, the PECs, they mostly have a prioritized list of projects and they're going to work off of that. But we may get quite a few others. I would, in your particular case, Mr. Alden, I would ask HR Tactic, I suspect they need to get some projects ready to be scored in that. But, yeah, they've got to go through the screening, too. So just because they get in there, if they're not through certain areas, they don't get screened. But I do believe there's going to be probably hundreds of projects to be looked at. Any other questions? Okay, we're going to have Mr. Kilpatrick, and I'm sure he'll be assisted by others, who's going to give us an update of where we are on Interstate 66. Remember, we're going down a couple of paths here. One is project development and the outreach efforts of developing both inside and outside the Beltway. Mr. Kilpatrick will be talking about outside the Beltway today. And we'll be focusing on the procurement side. As you know, we're going down a couple of paths there, both a public option and also a P3 option. And Mr. Kilpatrick will sort of update us on where that's been going. So welcome, Mr. Kilpatrick. Thank you. So you know who I am. I want to talk today about the hair that gave you away. Yes, the hair. The hair. 
I want to I want to talk today a little bit about where we've been and where we're going regarding the 60 Transform 66 project. Again, this discussion is about the project outside of Bellway. Uh, so we have kind of a little bit of background. We've developed a project scope and that uh, trying to that meets the purpose and need and, and is a financially feasible option. Now we are we are continuing to develop that in conjunction with the NEPA process. It's really important because We've not completed the NEPA process, and I'll talk a little bit about actions that we'll look for the board to take uh, in the fall. Uh, we're continuing to develop the public sector or the public financing option. Uh, that that was, is, and continues to be a, a viable option, and we're continuing to put that forward. Uh, we met, we put out a draft term sheet um, uh, a little over a month ago. And uh, from that, five private sector teams expressed interest in submitting proposals uh, to deliver a public-private partnership. Um, so uh, that that occurred, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Um, in addition to that, uh, the the public-private transportation, the PPTA advisory committee has been assembled and uh, uh, is scheduled to meet on August 17th. I'll talk again a little bit more about that where the where the, the secretary actually called for that group, the, the, the process that the secretary will call for that, that uh, uh, committee to meet in, in August. Uh, we'll be uh, looking at seeking uh, a resolution from the board, again, in, in uh, coming meetings to move forward with the project, and, uh, uh, and I'll talk about that also. This, these are the members of the uh, advisory committee. Um, some of them are by uh, by code uh, in terms of uh, well they're all by code but some again the, the selection of the CTB members and the selection of a of a, a financial person from an outside agency are through the Secretary of Transportation. Um, in terms of the CFO, it says by statute it's either uh, the CFO of VDOT or the CFO of Department of Public Transportation. So some of them are outlined and some are are, are not. So that is the uh, that is the committee. I want to talk a little bit about the meetings that we had with these with these five teams. Uh, we had meetings over two days, uh, about an hour and a half per team. Uh, expressed uh, uh, the teams. I will tell you, they all came prepared. They all had a little bit different approach, but they all clearly came prepared, uh, and they all came serious about uh, uh, P three options. Uh, they, there was uh, discussion about the term sheet, but uh, I think it was clear they understood the term sheet. And in addition to that, um, we got verbally from them their uh, intent to submit a proposal under the uh, under the PPTA if the solicitation went out. But subsequent to that, I actually uh, sent letters to uh, the teams and uh, asked for their confirmation by. Uh, by letter, uh, the letter I sent to them asked for confirmation back that essentially that they understood the term sheet, that they understood that uh, 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 what we were looking for, and that if we put out a solicitation, that they would uh, they would submit a proposal. Uh, I can tell you those letters went out this morning. I don't know, maybe eight o'clock, nine o'clock. I've already got two responses back to the affirmative. So. That kind of gives you the interest, the, the interest uh, in the teams, um, and I expect to have the rest of them. Now that I've mentioned that two have already responded, I expect to see three more in the next hour because they're probably watching me. 
Um, just a quick clarification, Mr. Commissioner. Uh, the PTTA Advisory Committee ultimately will make the recommendation. No. The PTTA Advisory Committee confirms if we go a P3 route. They don't make a recommendation. They confirm. They confirm. The executive, the uh, procuring agency makes the recommendation. But it has to be confirmed by the PPTA committee if we go outside of the standard procurement guidelines of the state to be a P3. So they don't make a recommendation. And if we choose not to go with a P3, then there is nothing for the PPTA advisory board to do. Uh, although I, I'm going to err on the side of, of a lot of disclosure and, and involve them. But it just as the CTP doesn't also pick the procurement, you are required now to be fully briefed before you allocate monies to it. But uh, that's a good question. This is still the procuring agency's decision. It has to be affirmed if it is a public-private partnership. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm going to talk in a moment about what's called the FOBI, defining the public interest. I'm going to talk in just a minute about that. So in terms of kind of the feedback we got during meetings uh, with these teams, uh, some question about length of concession term. And we had a 40-year con total concession term because under a public finance option, that frankly fit within our, our model. There's some advantages on a, on a private finance related to uh, tax implication and also some, some uh, I'll call it, a, we call it a tail to protect it uh, for revenues in terms of uh, debt coverage and things like that. Uh, continue to understand the scope of the improvement. Uh, again, as I mentioned, we are going through the NEPA process, so a preferred alternative has not been uh, has not been selected by this board, and we will bring that to you in September. If you have not selected the preferred alternative at this point, and also in terms of within the preferred alternative, is there phasing, scaling, and things like that? So again, that that's a, that continues to evolve. Uh, more precise traffic and revenue estimates. Again, we have some internal work that we did. We did not and will not share our data with them. Again, that, they will they will seek their own data and make their own assumptions. Interestingly enough, these five teams we already saw some of them taking some pretty detailed analysis and assumptions regarding traffic and revenue. Some more than more than others, but it was clear that, that again, as I said, these teams came prepared. Better understanding of the future of Metro Road expansion. We basically have said that uh, Metro will not ex expand for the next 10 years. I think we can better refine that the realities of the discussions we've heard today and, and at Metro about the, the challenges of any expansion in terms of extending the, the uh, orange line further into Fairfax and potentially Prince William County uh, is probably much longer than 10 years. So, We'll continue to. to I would not that insinuate that we're going to give any more than a 10 year. Our term sheets are term sheets. That is correct, sir. Yes. Um, yes. Was there any mention uh, from any of those teams about the expansion of VRE? A little bit of discussion. Again, we probably just didn't get into that level of detail. Um, but our term sheet's very um, uh, limiting, I'd say, in terms of we basically are not. not uh, uh, Having much in the way of what we call competing facilities, we're very, very tight on that and say, look, folks, we're, we're not going to preclude the Commonwealth from doing other things along in the corridor. 
And that's kind of a simple way of saying. I mean, we want to the price very importantly because uh, uh, it was clear as we developed the project, uh, we do not have local support without the ability to expand not only multimodal and BRE, but also other uh, highways and seven, 20, I mean, those others around us. So. Another area which we all believe is, is uh, good for the project, whether it goes forward as a P3 or to the public finance, is this uh, notion of what's called alternative technical concepts. Uh, alternative technical concepts basically are good ideas that they come up with in terms of building a better facility, reducing costs and the like. Um, under the under these, this, these processes, part of it is, in some cases, that remains proprietary or confidential gains competitive advantage from one team to the other. So whether we go forward as a P3 or uh, going forward with a uh, traditional design build, they have a great uh, aspect of this and, and more formalized uh, moving forward. Also, they reference what they call alternative financial concepts. Yeah, we give pretty strict and straightforward term sheets, but, but some of the things that they, they may uh, look for if it goes through as a P3 experiment. Yes, sir. Where are the alternative technical concepts presented in the RFQ, RFP process? It, speaking more generally, well, what happens is um, going to a procurement process, we'll stick with the P3 process. You have a request for qualifications, which basically says which teams are qualified. And from that list, that those submit their qualification statements. You may or may not reduce the number. Uh, you, may, you may qualify all of them. You may qualify some of them based on a rating system. So the teams are qualified, and then you go to the request for proposals, which really, in this case, is the draft comprehensive agreement or the contract. At that point, you move through this process, which may take uh, nine to 12 months from, from the tip to tip. But uh, somewhere probably uh, several months in, they're going to be submitting uh, uh, and, and meeting with us on an alternative technical contest. So it's several months into the process. And that is the RFP process? It's in the RFP process, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So we gain no insights into their technical approach in the RFQ? No, RFQ really is about the, uh, the capability of the teams. It's not about their proposal. It really is just about do they have the financial capability, do they have the technical, do they have the construction strength? Uh, do they have the operation strength? Do they, do they know uh, dynamic polling, open road polling, just that kind of thing? Are the teams capable of delivering? Not really about what what they're what, what's what's uh, under the hood. Does it include any project specific financial performance? At the RFQ stage, um, it's limited at that point. Uh, again, it's it's to the sense that we're confident that they can bring equity and bring the financing strategies to, 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 uh, to bear, but really you don't know at the RFQ stage, no, you don't know their financial structure. Are, are we bound by any convention there? Can we ask for more on the... Uh, I probably ask that you let him. Uh, I think some of these questions will be answered as he explores it through. Okay. The answer is yes, uh, and I will keep in mind we're going to continue the public option all the way through until we get a deal signed. So uh, we will have some indication, and I'll let Mr. Kilpatrick go through, but I want to make it clear that until we would have a deal signed with a third party, we will continue to develop and pursue a public option. So, um, but I heard him cut you off this catch, but I think he's going to take you down that path. 
also the structure of revenue sharing and revenue sharing in the context of a project like this is not what we just talked about a minute ago. This really is about revenues come in uh, from whole collection and how does it get dispersed. That's fundamentally what it means and at what end and is there sharing and how does sharing occur. Uh, we have some basic tenants in the term sheet but that will need to be further defined because that, that definitely changes uh, their financing structure. Um, discussion about risk sharing. They did ask, but some teams asked about inside the Beltway and, and the status of that. We gave them the information we have today, but ultimately on this it's going to be, uh, we have this term and we call bid it like you see it. And so it's going to be ultimately what's in, a, in an RFP, that's what's in there and you have to make your, your assumptions based on, on what's in there. Again, HOV conversion, there's some questions about the two, three, and when that's going to occur. Um, also, uh, again, continued discussion about metro rail expansion, and then uh, a little bit of discussion about the role of, of other public bodies. But I just wanted to give you a flavor of some of the discussions that, that occurred in those meetings. So I want to talk now and kind of move into a little bit of process and talk about the, the requirements under the PPTA, the Public Private Transportation Act, again from the 1990s, our guidelines, 1886, and, and, and moving forward. Under the legislation, uh, the, the agency, the, the head of the agency is called the responsible public entity. In the case of this particular project, Jennifer and I are, are working together on this project, but ultimately the P3 will likely be a VDOT uh, project. Uh, the, the transit component of that is uh, there's requirements that we fund those programs. The, the, the work itself has to be outside of the P3. But again, this is, this is so she and I are working together throughout this process, making sure we have a good package. But again, I will be the responsible public entity. So as through the process, I'm required under the law to determine whether the P3 procurement, the benefits in terms of value, in terms of uh, delineation of risk and liabilities and responsibilities um, are to be retained or transferred to a public entity. So that's a piece of that. And that's also a requirement of what's called this FOBI, defining a public interest. So steps going forward, I'm briefing the board today. Um, assuming that I get the responses back, like I've got two back today already, that we have themes that are are uh, uh, expressing interest and are, are uh, want to move forward. I will uh, I will sign a I'll call it an interim or uh, uh, conditional uh, finding of public conditional is really not the right term. Interim finding of public interest, which says that based on what I know today, based on what I know today, and the interest has been expressed, that a P3 option should be moved forward as a option for delivery of this project. It doesn't mean at this point that I'm saying I'm all in, it's a P3, it's a P3. Um, but it does mean that we've gotten enough information and I have enough confidence in, in what I've seen today that we should continue to move that, move that forward. And, and you're going to hear both the Secretary and I repeat this over and over again. A public finance option is outside of the P3 process, but we will continue develop and to move forward a public finance option because we just think that, that there's great value there also and, and it's important for us to keep that going. So there are two separate processes 
moving together on the same project, but again, I, so that you understand that, that point. Mr. Yes, sir. Uh, that, all, that also, that there is an assumption there, I'm thinking, on the public side, that if we go that route, there is going to have to be buy-in from MPO slash localities as part of that which for the public group. Actually, it probably... Uh, it may be a private group. Yeah, but I think it's, I think it's going to be both depending on the term sheet. And that we've had preliminary discussions and there are pros and cons from the from the local, particularly in BTA, right. we, uh, in terms of their level of investment. Okay, because NBTA outside the Beltway Task Force will be meeting that, that, August 5th. That's right. And I, 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 so just to let you know, yes, uh, we have been working with them and in, in their minds, there are pros and cons to, right. to, to which procurement. So, and that will be a decision, obviously, in in determining going forward uh, which is the appropriate procurement. So, again, in, in either on either scenario, I, as the secretary said, I absolutely believe that your the the NPOs uh, and the Northern Virginia Transportation Authority have an active role in this project in decision making in terms of funding, and frankly. Um, they, these projects have to be in the long-range plan, and the, the state, the SIP, and the DIP, and all of those uh, alphabet soup uh, uh, planning documents, um, they would have to add these projects. So again, in terms of this finding of public interest, I will make that finding. Um, I will ask the, sec the secretary will then, they will, he will call the uh, steering committee uh, to meet in, uh, again, we tentatively we set it up for August 17th. There's a 30-day notice requirement, so he, that, that that's why we we've set the meeting. But he is not call people call it uh, before the 17th. Uh, that that uh, steering committee will meet. Uh, they will review. Uh, uh, we will provide information, uh, and they will either uh, their their uh, responsibility is to either affirm or not to affirm my uh, finding of public interest. If they do affirm my finding of public interest, then uh, it will come to the secretary for concurrence and, and as, a, as chair of the board, and, and then to ultimately to the CPD, and we look for that in the September, at the September meeting at this point. That, that again, assuming these steps occur, then in September the board would um, uh, affirm and uh, uh, for us to continue the, the P3 process. Uh, so, so again, this is this is uh, I, I call it um, conditional because I think that we need to continue to gain more information. We look for requests for qualifications. Probably, uh, if if the steering committee affirmed my position, we would immediately go out and and look for qualifying the teams. Uh, we would look for after your decision in September to actually put out the any request uh, proposals. Yeah, let me, uh, Mr. Whitworth. Does the term "finding of public interest" mean that the public interest is greater for P3 than it is for public? So let me let me get into that because we're this is a, 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 a this first meeting. We'll build the finding of public interest is basically that we have had teams that said that they can meet this term sheet. If they can meet or come close, I mean, if we understand there's negotiating, meet the term sheet. As I explained last time, 
if we do it ourselves, we accept all the risk. If we finance it ourselves. So we put a term sheet out there just saying, if you're willing to do this, we believe the risk being transferred uh, would be something that the Commonwealth would be interested in. So this initial one that Mr. Kilpatrick's talking about is simply after these meetings saying, yes, we have teams that believe they can meet the term sheet. So that gets to Mr. Casper's question a little before. We need to go to the next step to see if we actually have a, a procurement uh, that uh, would result in a public interest. So Mr. Mr. Kilpatrick said incremental but we'll be simply asking this hearing committee to say we believe we need to open up the request for qualifications, the RFP process, where we can get into confidential and very significant uh, discussions to determine if, in fact, this can be accomplished. So, so what will happen is if we get to that, then we will then get to another meeting of the steering committee where we will lay out the public versus the private uh, uh, options with a recommendation from uh, Mr. Kilpatrick and Ms. Mitchell that this is where we believe we should go. If it be a P3 option, we would come back and say this is how we made our decision. So, so this is this will not be a once and then we're off and running. Uh, the steering committee will have to come back and affirm again the finding of public interest. Of course, I have to sign that we can deliver a finding of public interest. And I would expect that second meeting, or the second meeting may decide to have more than one meeting. That, well, I think they decide that they want to talk to people. That's fine. And that's up to them. But the point is, until if we decide to go on the P3, then we will lay out a very clear reason for why we decided to do that. So this is not you know, a one-stop thing. You will be briefed all along the way. If we get into proprietary information, we'll have to go into private sessions because that is the whole reason for entering in that. But you will be briefed before you're asked to vote on any type of allocation of money to this project. And I think that um, I'm going to talk here about the FOPIA. It's actually outlined in code, in code section 1886, pretty specific about what's required for me to, the, the statements I'm trying to make there. But we're operating, there's a couple different things that are operating. I think, frankly, it sometimes can confuse us. The PDTA, the original act, has been around since the 1990s. House Bill 1886 made revisions and uh, uh, some amendments to that, and the, probably the biggest of those is the steering committee. Uh, there are a number of other changes uh, in, in there, too, including this finding of public interest and some, and, and some more clarity uh, about that aspect. So we have those two statutes. We also have the uh, our PBTA uh, guidance document, which was was originated, uh, was approved several years ago. It was updated this past uh, winter. Some of those things that are in that document don't frankly align with the current 1886. So uh, Doug and his team are working through amending the guidance document, which is approved by, uh, accepted by me. Um, and and, uh, and use how we implement it. But again, you got to follow the law, and so the law is the law, and so that's where kind of our focus is on the on the. Well, let's make it clear: the law is not the guidelines. That, the guidelines, the law is the law, and we're going to follow. But the guidelines will be adapted to meet the political and the the, the transportation needs. And that's not to say that we're going to change them. While we were working, Mr. Cool made them working hard. 
to work with that. But we are working based on the law. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to make that point clear. That this new guidance document has to catch up with the new law. But we are we're following we're following statute uh, 1886. So in terms of the, what is it the, the finding of public interest require basically that the P3 procurement offers potential benefits including transfer of risk, uh, trans and, and capital and, and transfer of O and M and life cycle and the like. Um, by taking the next step by initiating this this procurement process, it's going to really allow us to know whether the P3 is uh, the value of the P3. Because you just don't know those details at, at, at this point. Um, that, that the details in developing with these teams to, to see whether the public interest is better served by a P3 or by a public finance option. Again, until you get in and really have them sharpen their pencils based on this, this uh, comprehensive agreement, um, it's difficult for us to really get down and say, okay, we've heard some good things in these meetings, but are they really, are they deliverable under this, this comprehensive agreement, which comes out of the term sheet? So I, I want to talk about kind of, here's where we are. Well, today I'm briefing the board. Uh, the advisory committee is scheduled for the 17th. Um, that under the assumption that the, that that that, uh, that committee on the same day affirms, then we're we're basically completing the initial finding of public interest. We would then come back to the secretary to the board. Um, we would look at, at issuing the request for qualification because again, all that's really doing is is solidifying. Okay, who's really who is really going to go after this this project? What's your team? How, how are you set up? What are your uh, financial uh, strengths and, and so on? It doesn't. It, it's not at that point getting into the details of how would you how would you do how would you build this project. We would look for two different things in, in September. Uh, we will brief the board on the the NEPA preferred alternative. And I mentioned that earlier. That at this point we don't have a, a project scope. And scale uh, approved by the board to, to uh, again you're, you're going to approve the location of the preferred alternative to NEPA and and so the the what ultimately gets built has to fit inside has to fit inside there. In addition to that, um, uh, again under the assumption if if uh, uh, all the parties agree that this should continue to be free, that we would look for uh, the board to affirm that also in. September, we would move forward with a RFP in uh, probably September, maybe in, in early October. And then I've written here, and I think this is an important point, a decision point of procurement options in December, by December of this year. Really what we're looking at, the, the draft RFP, the request for proposals that goes out, teams have some time, they're, they're cranking their numbers, they're getting, they're, they, they understand what they're building, and for them to be able to come back to us before the end of the year and us to be very clear that um, that we see that they, they can what they can deliver in terms of of, uh, of a project uh, all the while the public option continues to move forward and public finance, the public option moves forward even after December 2015 that's another important piece that we're continuing to leave that as, a, as an option 
for delivery of the project. But what this really is is a, is a decision point. I use the word decision point. It's a point of, of to confirm that, okay, is a P3 a viable option to continue um, forward? And the reason it's pushed into the procurement is we've got to know the details. And we just don't know the details um, yet. And again, as you roll through this, this assumes uh, a P3 option, but at the same time, our staff is working on, on putting together the, the procurement documents for design build also. So the chief engineer and his staff are developing that also so that if design build, public finance option moves forward, we have the contract documents um, in place. Mr. Commissioner? Yes. Yeah. Where does the ultimate responsibility lie as to reviewing, if, if we go the route of P3, uh, in terms of reviewing the proposals and making a selection? So what I, what I would suggest is if uh, at, at the end of December, uh, when we go back to say this is going to be a P3, uh, then we would lay out uh, at that time the proposals not the proprietary information, but the proposals compared to our public option and to make that decision. And I plan to do that even if we decided not to go with P3. Call them back in and say, here's why we didn't do that and let them have the opportunity to do whatever due diligence they have on that anyway. So, so uh, it may not be the answer, but it will be a range. We'll, we'll have a pretty good idea of whether or not we need to continue to develop a P3. Now, by the way, one of the things, we know this is going to cost the team's money, and we're going to uh, uh, offer them, uh, I don't know if they decide, a million, a million and a half, we'll work with them on reimbursing them from this work because we're serious about getting a partner. We're not just going through the format. But we're also serious about moving this project along and making sure, but we don't want them. We're also going to, we'll fund an investment grade traffic analysis, we're paying for that. So, uh, and they can make choose to do their own. But we will reimburse them because we don't want these teams working, not thinking one, we're serious, because we're dead serious about hopefully we can do this. But number two, we can't be just sitting out here negotiating for the next two years, which if you go back and look at some of the other procurements, without other options. So we want, this is not to rush the process, but it's on the other hand to make sure we have a realistic, uh, uh, is that, is, that the sec is that you as the secretary with the commissioner and the head of BRPT who are analyzing with staff those five proposals? Yes. You would make a recommendation yeah. to see TTV. That's right. If, now, if the recommendation is to go, uh, again, you don't, we have to get the, the, the advisory committee's approval with to continue with the P3. That's what I was trying to get to. You have to be briefed. You have to be briefed fully on the procurement before you're asked to vote on money. And frankly, the other piece of this is that both the secretary and I, prior to signing, I would ultimately sign a comprehensive agreement to be get to that point. He and I both must uh, reaffirm our finding of public interest that the public finding of public interest we did at the beginning matches. What we end up, what this contract getting ready to be signed says at the end, and if there is a change, we're not authorized. I'm not authorized to sign that agreement if it doesn't uh, match up with the starting point. We have to go back through and, and, and allow for that. I'll call it a 
circle back through that process and say, hey, these terms have changed, and I'm bringing it back through the process. Not the, not the, the, the contracting process, but the, the affirmation process of, of, of the, yes, this, this project is either the same or if it has changed, here are the things that have changed. It results in contracting progress. If it changed significantly like 460, it, it, may, it, may, it may mean that we would start contracting all over is there a decision point between the issuance of the RFP and the issuance, I'm sorry, of the RFQ and the issuance of the RFP? Or by approving the issuance of the RFQ, do we, in fact, then ensure the issuance of the RFP? No, because I think in, in September, uh, Commonwealth Transportation Board meeting in September is where we would look for, for resolution from the board as a body saying that yes, uh, VIA uh, is a responsible entity proceed into the request of proposals. So that's a decision. We're going to continue the P3 process as long as our P3 parties are showing interest in delivering the project that we're doing. So this is not meant to cut them off. <coughs> But it's meant to keep you informed to continue on, continuing that process uh, uh, as long as they are can meet the term sheets and as we develop the process. Yeah, we're not we're not looking to exclude. Them. Okay, I understand. It's yeah. Just I guess a comment that we have a very significant, complex decision to make on uh, August the seventeenth, uh, having been briefed that day, and then ultimately making a decision the same day. I'm willing to proceed with the RFQ. No, all, all RFQ, your, I'm sorry. All your, the, that's why we say all we're asking, you may take more time, it's work to do it, but what we're asking you to say is all we're, we're moving forward based on this documentation from the team that they can deliver the term sheet. We're not, we're not, we're not. I understand. Yeah, yeah. I understand. In other words, that's really what we're moving forward on. That's why we have the meeting to determine from them whether they say we're serious, are you serious, et cetera. They are. So, but I don't expect that's the last time for you guys to meet. You no, understand, all I would ask is that the presentation of that information occurred before the 17th in a time frame adequate. What information? Well, I'm, there's the two pieces to this. There's a, a better understanding of the public funding option that ultimately we have to weigh. We have to understand. Ultimately, yeah. Ultimately, yeah, ultimately. But, I mean, we're not asking you. We don't need your, we don't need your approval on the public option. We need you to determine whether or not we have to go. I understand you don't need our approval, but we need an understanding to be able to fairly weigh the P3 options that we're, that we're reviewing. Because yeah, but be you, know, you need to weigh the finding of public interest as whether it's in the public interest. I understand, but... No, no, I think, it's, I think it's important, Scott. You're not making the decision on the procurement. What you're doing is, and I don't mean that to be what you're saying is, you're basically, we're saying that we believe it's in the best public's interest to continue pursuing a P3. That's all we're asking the considering committee uh, at this point. Not that we've chosen a P3. We can't get to give you what you want until we see more from them. In other words, I understand, but I mean, so we're not, you know, this is not the ultimate decision we're going one way or the other. We're asking you to say, based on this term sheet and our discussions, we think it's in the best interest to continue to explore a P3. But quite frankly, if they can deliver that term sheet and take the risk, I would make a recommendation, I think, that that's the way we should go. I think. I mean, you know, we've got to go through it. 
But I understand where you're going, but we're not we're not at the, the ultimate decision yet. Is my point. And, I, and you got to. I agree. At that point, we should say why we went one way or the other. And that's why I would say a second time we'd come back and say, yes, we're going this way, we're not, and here's why. Does that occur at the end of the RFP process? Probably sometime late this year. It's December. It's the December, December meeting. We'll call you back in to say, you know what, we think it's, now we need to show why we need to continue this process or not. And, and yeah. Once an RFP process, how long does that take? From the time you give uh, teams a, a draft, uh, uh, essentially a draft contract, I use the word draft because some of those you have to have proprietary meeting. They may offer suggestions on the details, the technical details of the project. We may agree with them and issue addendums, which ultimately leads to here's the final contract. But that that, that time frame is probably a, without alternative technical proposals. It's probably six to nine months for these teams to put together a, because again, that, that's the best and final offer is really what it, what it comes down to. Inserting alternative technical concepts probably adds a couple of months. So again, if you see the time frame, we're looking at about, about a year from the time that the first draft proposal goes out to the time we select a, we would select a, a, a proposer. Now, if it's a design bill, it basically fits in that, so from this point down to the bottom, whether it's a PPTA, there's a provision for audit, but again, whether it's a PPTA or a design bill, it's about, again, about nine months, six to nine months, but by adding what we think is very important is technical concepts, it gives that more interaction to better, better tune the project. It probably hits about a year. So September of 16 would be when we would, we would be ready to award or sign a contract or whatever, uh, uh, how, that, how that comes together. And again, on a, on a, on a PPTA, you have commercial flows and, and uh, they go through that, that process of, of solidifying the funding and, and so on. So it's about a year from, uh, a little over a year it's gonna take to get through either process here. And then looking at potentially going to what we call limited notice proceedings. By the way, the chart we have on ours is different than your chart. Oh, it's, uh, it's yeah. different. So that's part of the If you look at that, look at that. Why that happened, Mr. Kilpatrick, but that's the chart. This, which, which is the chart? The, the chart on the screen. That was, was going to be my question. Yeah. Yeah. This decision point for procurement options, just explain exactly what yeah, it is. What we're looking for in December is a reason to continue the P3 process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have words. There's a reason to continue. Not to exclude it, but a reason. And that's when. Uh, we come to say we really think well, that's what I would envision if we decide to go that way. We believe there is. We come to you and your committee, Simon, and say, here is the public option, and here is the, you know, what we think is a P3, and here's why we've decided to go one way or the other. And if we continue with the P3, which I hope we do, we will continue to still work down the, the public option, but we would then ask for the final to say, yes, we, we believe it's going to end up in a P3. And that's what you Just for clarity then, so yeah. by, if we proceed to the RFP process, by December we'll have enough clarity on the respective bidder's financial position that we can make that decision comparing it to the public. Yes, I think we'll, as much as we have ours, that's correct. That is correct. 
Right now, they have proprietary information, so do we. Okay. But I think, you know, but in December, we should have enough to be able to say to you, the committee, I say you, you're on the committee, Mr. Feldman's daughter is on the committee, to say, we believe we have a range. We developed this project up under both as to say, you know, we want to continue the P3 option. We believe it's going to end up that way. Or we're just so far apart, you know, it, we don't want to waste anybody's other topics. So well, I guess I wasn't clear is that there's a progressivity of information. Yes, okay. yes, that is correct. Sure. So we will have an alternative approach to later in that process. But they'll have factored that alternative approach into the creativity of their financial model. We would hope they would. Okay. Okay. Well, that's why we want to reimburse them and let them know. Now, they're not going to have all the answers, and neither will we, but we'll have an idea if we're in the ballpark. Understood. And that's what that, we'll that's let important clarification. That's right, yes. That's we're in the ballpark. Could you give me some examples of transfer of risk? Well, it, 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 uh, there's three risks. I mean, three primary risks. Construction risk. And we probably can handle that through um, uh, either procurement, through a design build or a P3. These, these, are, these other things, other teams would argue that there's more, but I would argue that we can get a lot of it uh, in a, a design build. There's operation and maintenance risk. We may or may not decide to operate it ourselves. We can do that contractually. Then you get the financial risk, and what I think are the major risk in this, in this deal, and that is the uh, the, the traffic and revenue. Uh, if we could have a team under our term sheet accept that, I'd love to share that risk. We, we, we think we understand the risk, um, but uh, that or financing risk. You know, financing. So what we're saying at the initial is we believe that all three of those risks there's a potential to be shared with a third party, and that's why we believe it's in the public interest to continue going forward with the P3. We hope by the end of the year that we've negotiated enough to say, you know, we think we can be properly compensated for that risk, and let's keep going. But we may get to the point to say, you know, that's, we, we can't. That's why we had to develop what we thought we could do it for so we would know where to negotiate from or to face from uh, in that regard. Uh, I fully admit we don't know all the answers. And I'm hoping that there's a lot out there that they can prove. But I do know we have a base to say what is a range of value for the risk. And we would love to share the risk. But I think we also need to be prepared to move forward if we can't get good value for sharing that risk. That's, that's as simple as what this process is. It's much more detailed, but that's, that's really what it is. We want to share the risk. I've got to be able to stand up in front of appropriations and everywhere else and say we were properly compensated, the taxpayers of the Commonwealth were properly compensated by sharing this risk. That's what this process is about. I spent the last few weeks dealing with, but I'm going to update you on a little bit later, on where we were not properly compensated. And it's cost us dearly. Government College says we're not making that mistake again. That doesn't mean we don't have good partners. In fact, he's made, quite frankly, very clear this had nothing to do with the private uh, our partners. They negotiated in good faith, and they looked out for their interests. So must the company. And this is the only way I know how to do it in that. So that's what this is about. It's not about trying to pick one over the other. It's about making sure we're being good fiduciaries and being compensated or relieved from the risk. I mean, as I said last time, 
You know, you don't think you can do it? Fine. Define what that is. You think the revenue risk is fine? Okay, tell me what you believe that to be. We'll make a judgment then as to whether or not that we believe. It doesn't matter what I believe or what they believe. It's what we, the comparison between. That's why I don't believe uh, that the, the, uh, our, our sculpting scenarios are of any value to them. Shouldn't be, because I'm not interested in telling me how dumb I am. I, I can figure that out on my own. What I am interested in is what you have to say compared to what we believe we can do so we can be good partners. Think about this. If we be a partner, we're going to be there for 40 or 50 years. To think these projects are not going to have issues over the next 40 or 50 years. I mean, I've never been in a real estate deal where I didn't have to go back and, and look at that. Now, where we've been in these other projects is, you know, we're the only ones that are back to share the risk or make it better. It's got to be a team, and we want to be a good partner. So when we run into risk, we can share it. We're not going to be setting out there out $200 million again on a project. Or we're not going to have to be continuing to buy down tolls because we made a bad decision up front. And I don't have to worry about building another facility across the Hampton Roads because we gave up all that. I mean, that's just not good policy. Or we should be compensated for it. That, that's really what this is about. And I've said it before, I fully expect and hope we get a partner. And I think you'll find the Commonwealth will be a great partner. But under terms that I can, can that I say I, we, the administration, can justify that this is why we did it. That's really what it's about. It's not trying to preclude anybody at all. This is not a big public works project. The private sector is going to build it. In fact, I'll add a little bit of color to some of these meetings. I've received phone calls from some of the teams independent members have called me and said, we don't care which way it goes. I'm not going to say which ones, but I mean to that. I mean, I've had others call me up and say they don't like the process. But others say, we can, we can beat your numbers great. That's great. I think that's, that's what real competition is about. And that's, uh, you know, what I think we, we should do so we're all being good partners. So, um, you know, I want to make it clear. There's no preconceived decision. There really isn't. The only thing that's preconceived is, is that we've got to get a good and fair deal for the Commonwealth and deliver the transportation project that the Commonwealth needs, not what somebody wants to build. I'm not saying that happens, but there are, you all know, I mean, they want to maximize revenue. I get it. I do want to do the same thing. But that may not be the right policy for the Commonwealth. And that's all I'm saying. We need to make sure we can reach fine common ground. I think we will, based on the comments I've heard. I think we definitely will. But we'll see as the process goes. But I'm fully com comfortable in recommending and, 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 and developing. Um, and Governor McCall is, it, it's, a, it's a public option. Because as soon as that goes away, we don't have competition. And I'm not going to let that happen. You know, so um, that, that's why we're doing it. But it's not meant to... Uh, to preclude anybody, method, let's see if we can really make a good deal for everybody. That's what it's about. And uh, I'll give Connors. Mr. Chairman, thank you. I, I think you raised a good issue. Uh, there, is a, there is a preconceived notion that P3s are great, everything else is bad. I mean, I, I, I've heard elected officials talk about it, it comes up with a fan to put a P3 out there, everything's going to be great. 
and you and I know that that's not always the case. It, it raises false assumptions and it causes bad decisions sometimes. So I think there is that false notion that P3s are, are, are the magic elixir for all of our problems and everything else is bad. And that's sort of the case. I think we need to look at the. I, I don't want to diminish the, the, the complexity of, of what goes and in, is involved in this, but there are common threads. VDOT is not going to abdicate this management. We're not going to abdicate our management of any project. But either way, you've got it right. We're all going to be responsible. So we're not going to abdicate our responsibility. Everything is a VDOT project. That's right. We don't contract. We, we, we don't build, like you just said. We don't have government employees building roads or rails or anything else or schools. We, it's all a public-private partnership. So the fundamental difference is how you pay for it. Sure. Look, I think, I think there's this false note. Every time, I know we all understand the acronyms and the <coughs> in this room, but outside this room, I think there's this false notion, this false belief that P3, all P3s are good. Everything else is bad. And I, I, I've experienced, you know, it's been my experience, it's not the case. And I do think that we do have a responsibility to accelerate these projects as, as quickly as possible. Um, but ultimately, there, there is, I think we need to simplify some of what's going out there, uh, because there are more common threads in both choices than there are differences. And the key difference is the fiscal... We're really talking about how we should finance this and share the risk. And that's really what it, there's no doubt in my mind that I can build this and I know we can operate. I'm not saying that's the best, I'm just saying I know we can. How we finance it? <coughs> Look, I read the papers. I know what the lobbyists do. I mean, you know, I, I get it. It's politi political. Uh, government calls me clear. We're going to be driven on the data. If you want to waste your, I should say that, if you want to spend your time doing that, that's fine. Look, there's risk to the pub, uh, public options. There's five or six different scenarios. Some require general assembly, some don't. I mean, I get it. There's risk on both sides. So I'm trying to, to figure out how we get a process that gets the right project. And I will say this, we're not going to build the wrong project. We're not, you know, I just, we're just not going to. I think we've seen that is not the issue. And, and then if we can, how, we can do, how can we share this risk appropriately? And I don't believe, I, I believe that, uh, that you can systemize uh, processes. I've never seen deal-making systemized. And I've done hundreds of them, uh, and every, the risk and things are different uh, in every one. And I think that's why we have to go through a process exploring all the options. But I'm not sitting up here advocating that, um, you know, that, that, that we should always build publicly. Anyway, I'm advocating we should always build private. I'm saying let's look at the data, let's determine the right project, and what is the, what is the best way to do it. And I, I don't know how to do that other than the process we're going through. All I'm advocating for is just yeah. simplifying the message a little bit. Because yeah, I understand. Ultimately, they're all P3s. Yeah, I know. Yeah, in fact, we went through that. You look at our legislation, P3 started out being designed bills. So, I mean, we're going to share a risk. The question is how much, and I'd love to, I'd love to share it all, as long as we're compensated you know, appropriately. And, you know, it's all how you structure the deal. I mean, if those people think P3s are the only way to go, we can give them a couple of case studies that... And I want to point out something else, too. I also am very cognizant. I do not want to take additional monies away from other projects. That's a consideration here. I mean, and, and that's, Gary, back to your point, Mr. Zinsky, about the NBTA, how they're willing to invest based on their decisions is a, a part of it. Uh, but I started, we started this process 
when looking at the P3, we have $500 million, and it looks like we're going to have to have a billion dollar subsidy or something close to it. Maybe we get worse than that. Least, but, you, know, you know, that's what started all this. So I do not advocate taking money from other projects. Certainly don't. I want to make, make sure that's clear. And that'll be a decision. So uh, many of the public options don't use debt capacity. It's a one-off that we one chance to do it. That's good. I'm not, you know, if we had to take money from other projects, that's going to be a consideration too. I want to point out to you. I mean, in other words, maybe it's better. Because we have unlimited resources. I don't necessarily mean to believe that the P3 is always the cheapest option. That, that's all I'm saying. But I'm very cognizant to make sure that we are not pulling monies, you know, from other projects because we do have scarce resources. So upfront costs are very are, are important to, to the Commonwealth. So, I mean, it's a lot of things that go in. All it, just trying to get all the facts so we can make an informed decision. Mr. Chair, you, you've done a great job, I think, of identifying the benefits of running this process in parallel. Benefits everybody. Okay. Makes the process competitive. What are we doing in the public model to replicate what the private sector is doing and bring creativity, cost efficiency, and That's new ideas to this process? I would assume they're evolving at the same time. Yes. They are. They are in terms of uh, uh, moving forward with investment grade traffic revenue setting. Uh, we're also uh, looking, continuing to refine financing options, as well as looking on the construction side and and uh, uh, the scope and scale of, of the project. Uh, because there are there are opportunities for saving uh, and efficiencies on on. Uh, how we, how we actually construct the facility. Um, what will happen if we design build, again going back to, we will have to have the opportunity to design build working with individual teams who have alternative technical proposals, really look at some of those details also. They may say, gosh, if you build this ramp here instead of here, or if you build it in this way, we can say this, and again, less cost, and it's not a revenue impact, our folks can do that. We have plenty of resources internally that can evaluate various revenue scenarios based on physical construction configuration. Revenue or cost scenarios? It's really both. I mean, you think about in terms of on, on, on a project like this, and this is what these teams are going to do. They're going to say, well, this ramp costs X amount, and it's going to drive this much traffic. This ramp is going to cost this amount and drive this much. And there, so there's this, this balance you're saying, wait a minute, I can build this ramp. It's serving the same people or largely the same people. It costs me less. It's driving up. So it, it, it's all about that balance of how much does it cost and how much, I, how much return am I getting on that. We can do that just as well as, as the private firms can do that. And that's the evaluation that, that our folks are continuing to do by having a higher level traffic and revenue model, it does help us in that in that area also. Um, the other piece, and, and I want to make, uh, we've been talking about procurement, but on the ground in Northern Virginia, PRPT and VDOT employees are are actively engaging citizens, citizen groups, uh, uh, particular interest groups, uh, local government, regional government, uh, looking at at this project because. There, there are many divergent different needs up, up in Northern Virginia with this project, and our folks, we're spending a lot of time listening. 
And I think that's a, that to me is the hallmark of this project. The amount of time we're spending listening to, uh, getting input from various individuals and groups on what's important to them. It's not possible to make all of it fit together. It's just not possible because some interests are clearly at polar opposite. But our goal is as much as we can bring those things together, getting consensus um, at the, what I call the local governments, the county and the cities, and the regional entities there, um, making sure that what we're delivering is, in, is what's best for the public. At the end of the day, that, that's our job, is to deliver a transportation solutions in the best interest of, of the citizens of Virginia. So it's a lot of work going on there. Uh, boards of supervisors are going to be meeting um, with, with they, what, what they see as their preferred uh, solution in terms of the, the, the roadway as well as the transit. And that's going on as we speak into the early fall also. Um, but seeing those things coming together uh, and being able to deliver to the board a preferred alternative in terms of what we, that we think we have consensus in Northern Virginia uh, on a project moving forward. So I, want, I think it's important. There's a lot of, of work going on there. We've been, we've been uh, uh, driving to preserve the metro corridor. We've been driving to reduce the right-of-way impacts. We've been driving to get the right transit mix in, in. We've been driving to make sure we're addressing local government's needs regarding access points. Um, just a tremendous amount of effort at the, uh, at, at, in Northern Virginia by both agencies uh, working, working up there. So again, that's going on while we're here in Richmond talking about the procurement process. I'll make, I made a commitment to the board, uh, and even though it's not your responsibility for procurement, uh, I, I like the robust discussion. So I, I will tell you, I'm going to solicit your input before I sign any final finding of public interest. Now, we may have to go in closed session on that, and I'll also update you uh, on what it is, but, you know, I value the input, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to go down this path without, you know, I used to sit in your seat, uh, and I'm not going to go down this path asking you to vote on things that you don't know intimately exactly what the risks are and where we're headed with. But I also want to make our private parties know I'm not going to disclose anything in public uh, in that because that's not, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons for going to the next step is to get into that protected so we can really uh, move forward. But, um, you know, I take seriously me having to sign this in the public interest. You know, I think every secretary from here on out, the commissioner will, will do the same. And so uh, I think, uh, you know, utilizing this board is key to that. And I welcome the comments from the steering committee. I mean, you know, there's a lot of discussion. I mean, you know, I mentioned the other day, I think this is exactly the conversations we ought to be having. These are billion-dollar projects. They affect a lot of people's lives. I mean, it's a big, big thing. They shouldn't be done in a vacuum. We ought to have a robust discussion. And let, you know, it's messy, but I think it is the only way to do it. Mr. Whitmer. These, your signing of the uh, signing of public interest you're talking about at the end of the day in September of 2016? Or sooner, whenever we decide. I guess it's, a, it's feasible that somatically both proposers, meaning the state proposal, the public proposal, and the P3, could both be in 
in public interest. But the, well, I mean, but the, is, the issue is which is the best that's public right. issue. That's, that's right. And, and I'll, I'll make this clear. I'm hoping we can share some of this. I mean, you know, we've been saying, you know, it's all been reported the other. Uh, I'm hoping we can. Uh, and and uh, I'm very comfortable. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go the other way if we don't. But, I mean, well, the, assumption, the, the assumption is that the public option could be. It could, could be better. But, yeah. but it's possible that you could be a finding that we couldn't do it, is it not? Yes, I, certainly could be. And, and again, I said there's a lot of factors that go into this. There's a whole lot of factors. Just so like there's so a lot of risk on the other side. Of determining which is the best yeah. of the public right. interest. We're going to continue to develop the, the public side. Some of the options may require general assembly approval, may not get it. I mean, I, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of policy, may not get it. Um, there's other options that don't, and so we'll make the best decision as we can in that. Because I do believe there's a lot of ideology that's still out there, uh, and um, hey, I can only deal with the tools that are given to me. If they're not given to me, I, you know, that will factor into my finding of public interest. But I will disclose what it costs us. I, you know, by not doing it, you know, I think that's my responsibility too. But I mean, you're right. As we develop these things, that uh, uh, I don't think uh, you know that the public option, you know, uh, you know, like I said, there's five or six different sculpting or financial scenarios we looked at. Some impact our overall debt. Some don't. Some uh, require general assembly. Some don't. I mean, that's, you know, we're going to be developing as we go through. So I'm not, you know, that's why I'm saying it's not a, you know, a predetermined outcome. But I'm saying I didn't know how we start the process without understanding where we began, where we think we could be. Right? I mean, you know, so that, that's, I don't know how else to do it. But no. Uh, and I actually believe that uh, I think we'll, we'll get some interesting proposals. So, I mean, listen, I mean, we need, and Democratic Toolmate's done a good job, we will need private parties to deliver the projects here in the Commonwealth. And every deal is different, uh, and, you know, and we'll evaluate them that way. But, you know, we very much uh, understand the value of private investments. So I don't want to make sure we certainly do. So, Mr. Coolman, did you have anything that you want to add? I know because you've been supporting it out there in front of a lot of dealing with teams. I don't know if there's anything you want to add before we... Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, yeah, there was. I mean, I sort of wanted to jump into yeah, the sure. conversation the way we used to when I was on the yeah, seat. I think it's important to understand several things. Number one, the process that basically uh, is adopted in the guidelines does provide us a lot of decision points as we go through. Right. We are working now to uh, work the advisory committee into that framework at the appropriate slot um, so that it's consistent with uh, the rest of the process. But there's also, as has been outlined, I just want to make clear, uh, Mr. Kasowitz, what we're talking about when, we, when the commission talked about the RFP was the draft RFP. In the end, after we discuss it with teams and develop the best uh, version uh, from our point of view, we will then issue the formal RFP and all, each of the teams will respond to those specifics. 
That's a fundamental difference with some of the uh, projects that have gone forward in the past, where you did have one proposer and it was basically a negotiation of all the terms. In this case, we are going to set the terms in the final RFP and the teams will respond to it. Uh, the second is, uh, we wouldn't expect to have the uh, final RFP in 2016. <coughs> so the commissioner suggested there's, a, there's time to actually develop it properly and get proper proposals that are, that are uh, actually well developed and explored uh, by the rating agencies and so forth so we have more information. Um, and then finally, I think the secretary and the chairman laid out the, the potential benefits um, and others have referred to. Some of them actually are inherent in, in alternate delivery, whether it's a revenue risk uh, project or whether it's a design build project. Others, the light revenue risk itself uh, is one of the main benefits. How you lock in the uh, annual operating expenses for the transit is another major. How, uh, as this is the uh, chairman suggested, you protect the other, uh, your other funding options or other priority projects that don't have public-private partnership potential and so forth. But each of those is a series of judgments that you'll make, um, that your leaders will make, and that ultimately um, should give us the best answer that we want. I think everybody wants to see the best value here, and as long as you keep that as a goal, uh, some of the ideology falls away, some of the political machinations just fall away, and we're able to make the judgments. So, thank you. And I want to point out, we, this is really, we, we want it inclusive. We're not trying to preclude. It's actually designed, we're hopeful to, you know, to get them. So I want our private parties to, to partners to know. And one of the final points to make is I believe in September we'll bring you some of those suggested changes in the guidelines. That's right. This how this new provisions <laughs> actually fit in with what we've done before and extend the work that the CDB members and others did. Catherine, one final question. Is, okay. Is, if we move from RFQ to RFP and expect the private sector to provide detailed financial proposals sometime in the December timeframe of 2015, that would include the benefits of their alternative technical concepts. Should we not be funding a separate initiative? Through VDOT, either through a special VDOT team or an independent contractor to attempt to refine the public option scope as well at the same time to keep that fair. Yeah, and I, I, I think that, that is going on. Yes, working with, yes. Answers, yes. And is that within VDOT a special team or is it an outside? Because we're. In terms of. In terms of refining what, the, what we estimate the project will cost. We, would, we can do that and we'll do that internally in terms of refining. Um, the, we're continuing to look at the ramp configurations and all that and, and develop, improve our cost estimate. But as a public finance option, we would simply we would have design build teams that would go out and, and they would be competing in terms of, of cost. And that's really what's going to, you know, we have, a, whether it's a P3 or a, a public finance, we have a what we an estimate of what it's going to cost, the construction. The actual, what it's actually going to cost in construction is going to be less than that. And the reason I say it's going to be less than that, when we develop our estimates, we're ensuring that our estimate 
um, has all the components in it and that we have sufficient money budgeted and programmed for it. You don't get the competitive tension until you get competitive tension. And at that point, that's when you get the actual cost driven down. But in terms of kind of the scope of the project, our teams uh, are already working that. When we say VDOT, we are supported uh, significantly by, by a number of engineering firms that do work, uh, are only working for us. And we particularly selected some that work for people in the V3 arena. I mean, so do we get everything? No, but, but Scott, we're, we're aware of that. I understand where you're coming from. The, the other fundamental piece is that, and there'll be some conflict from a P3 scenario, what's, what helps drive a better project for a concessionaire may not be what we want from a public perspective. A, a simple example, <coughs> auxiliary lane on the main line may be very important to us in order of relieving congestion and weaving and so on. From a concessionaire perspective, it may not have importance and it may actually detract from their, their, their uh, uh, revenue stream. So we want to make sure that what is in our, whether it's our contract or our comprehensive agreement, is what's best for us. And so some of those decisions we make are, uh, will, will, will not drive revenue to a project, but are in the best interest of the public. And again, rank configuration, auxiliary lanes are a good example. Okay. Director, thank you very much. I uh, appreciate your hard work too, uh, Doug. I, I think with that, uh, you, I think, now know where we're headed. Uh, and. Um, I want to, let me just end on this, is that we value our private parties here in the Commonwealth, and I want to, I'll go into, before, in our new business section, I'm going to take you through the settlements in there. I think I should probably do that in the formal session to do that, because uh, I'm actually asking a ratification, the action's already done. Um, but um, I want to make clear uh, that uh, in all of those, None of this has to do with any of, of the issues related to our private parties. This is simply a recognition by the Commonwealth uh, and, and making our evolution of our process. So uh, clearly, we value private investment in the Commonwealth, and, uh, and uh, we'll continue to do so and appreciate the relationships we have with our private parties. So. With that, uh, I think that concludes the uh, workshop session. And for those in the audience, we'll probably take probably 1.30, 45 minutes for lunch. We'll probably adjourn again at 1.30 uh, for our formal session, um, where uh, the first order of business will be public comment uh, for anyone, and then we'll go into our action items. So with that, I'll draw and close the uh, workshop session, and we'll reconvene at 1.30. Uh, to begin uh, our uh, 